Okay, good morning everyone. I'd like to call to order the Marin County Board of Supervisors meeting of Tuesday, September 19th. Uh, we will start this morning with a roll call and an announcement how to participate remotely. Supervisor Rice. Here. Supervisor Lukens. Here. Supervisor Sackett. Here. Supervisor Radoni. Here. Supervisor Moulton Peters. Here. If you are joining us today on Zoom and would like to participate, please use the raise hand icon located on your screen. If you are participating by landline, please press star nine to raise your hand. When it's your turn to speak, your name will be called and you will be asked to unmute your device. If you are participating by landline, you will hear that you are unmuted. That concludes the instructions and I will pass the meeting back to President Moulton Peters. Okay, thank you. We'll start this morning with public open time. I know a number of you are here to speak this morning, so we'll take those in the chambers and then we'll go online. So please come to the podium. You have two minutes and please give us your name when you, you come up. Good morning. I'm Susan Stomp. I am here personally and not representing a group except the, the people who are, are here with me. And that is regarding uh, an issue which uh, you just, you received either yesterday or today uh, um, a memo and a request from uh, a group of people who are concerned about the litigation going on at Point Reyes National Seashore. And uh, the fact that it's been 18 months in the county and those of us in the county have not been party to these negotiations and we feel very strongly that uh, as you did in 2016, that the county should intercede in this uh, litigation and there are a few of us here who uh, are here to support uh, your becoming involved and uh, in putting this item on a future agenda for discussion and uh, potentially a vote on it and an opportunity for those of us in the public to have some input on, uh, on your decision and hope that you support uh, the, the counties becoming involved in the current litigation as you did in 2016. Um, I've been here for many, many years and, uh, and was delighted to move here in the 70s and took part in the countywide plan uh, issues at that time and was so excited about the interest uh, that the whole county has in preserving agriculture in our county. And this, uh, this we feel is strongly related to uh, countywide issues. So there are a few other people here who are want to bring up this issue too. So I will stand. Thank aside. you very much. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Good morning, Sam Dalcini here as a member of the agricultural communi community. Just with a quick reminder that the there is great importance in preserving and keeping alive the agricultural tradition in the Point Reyes National Seashore. That is 20% of the agricultural activity here in the National Park, or in the 20% of the ag in Marin occurs in the National Park. And I would like to encourage the County of Marin to become a participant in this process as has occurred and carry on that tradition of cooperation that dates back to the 1980s or even longer. Um, your participation could be of great value 
and continue to pay a dividend on something that is so precious in this community here in West Marin. Thank you. I'm Judy Teichman. Uh, I'm here in support of the request to urge or to have the county council join in intervention in the this litigation. Um, we're concerned about the timeliness of it. The litigation has been pending for two years now, or not pending. The, the record of decision on the general management plan amendment was approved in September two years ago. The litigation has been pending since January, and the parties have been in confidential negotiations for a year and a half. They are so confidential that none of us out in West Marin, where some of us are from, have been able to learn anything about what's being discussed. It's very frustrating. Uh, we assumed that it was about implementing the general management plan amendment, but who knows? The recent announcement that the park's preferred plan for dealing with the problem of the overstocking of elk at Tamales Point is to take down that fence, which would allow elk on Tamales Point to move into the dairies and ranches in the pastoral zone and further jeopardize their existence um, is what makes this request timely, we believe. Even though they've been in discussions for you know, 18 months, this is a new element and um, we believe it would be justification for the county again intervening as they did in the 2016 in the original lawsuit between these same parties. Thank you. Thank you. Next, please. Hi, good morning. Eileen Connery from Point Reyes Station, also on the same topic. To say, you know, the county has given so much support and investment toward agriculture in Marin through Marin Organic, through Marin Agricultural Land Trust, and your past interventions at the Point Reyes National Seashore to sustain agriculture in the ranches in the park. And this is the time to intervene now with the National Park Service to ensure the future of marine agriculture. Please see the website that we've put together, www.savemarincountyag.org, for the documents that we've given you today for other people who are here as well. Thank you very much. Um, I have a handout. Right, just right here to our county manager. My time plenty? Yep. Go right ahead, all right. All right, well, um, my name's Marguerite Moriarty. I've been here uh, before you, so you know why I'm here. It's uh, for Marin City, Save Our City. Um, Marin, uh, the Save Our City is not going away. Judge Rosero ruled that this body of supervisors did have discretion, contrary to um, Brian Washington's advice, um, in authorizing the $40 million bond. Um, you indicated that your hands were tied. Um, well, now it seems that they may be untied. So Marin City, being an unincorporated community, relies on this good board for decisions on behalf of their community. Marin City would be exempt from SB 35 if it were a normal city in Marin County. Um, Marin City is asking that their voice be heard by this Board of Supervisors in self-determination. 
Pastor Quinn of First Presbyterian, San Anselmo Church, said the property should convey, be conveyed to an entity working on behalf of the interests of the Marin City community. You all know the one way in, the Adudawa seniors being blocked from sunlight, um, the unsafe uh, curve there across from Rocky Graham Park. If you look at the uh, paper that I gave you with the, uh, un the other uh, um, entities, you'll see uh, the difference, the disparities. So you've said you've all read the color of law replete with examples of redlining and racial discrimination. And I'm here to ask you to do the right thing today and to speak with your council and find other options for Marin City so that this unjust building is not a reality. Thank you. Thank you. Next, please. I'm uh, Jeffrey Shaskin. I've uh, lived in Greenbrae for 37 years, and I'm a taxpayer. And I'm really talking to the people of Marin, not so much to the supervisors, because I think you're well aware of what's happening down in Marin City, and my colleague just talked about it. But I want everybody to know there's an environmental disaster that's on coming, uh, and it's coming because of God. She is going to bring atmospheric uh, rivers back to Marin, and the uh, person who got this uh, contract to build this five-story building has cleared out the area so there's no longer 200-plus-year uh, redwoods holding the ground. So there's just dirt there, and it's on a hillside. And when an atmospheric river comes, like it did last year, and it happened in uh, Nevada, there's going to be a landslide. And over 100 tons of dirt is going to go downhill. Dirt doesn't go uphill in atmospheric rivers. It's going to go downhill. It's going to take out Rocky Graham Park. It's going to take out the fire station. It's going to take do, uh, damage to Marin uh, Martin Luther King High School. And it's going to be a serious disaster to people. And I want the uh, taxpayers of Marin to know this is coming because there's nothing there now, just dirt just piles of dirt, and it's going to happen. And so you'll be hearing about this in about Thank you. two months. Thank you. Thank you. Next, please. Good morning, supervisors. Um, my name is Maria Patricia Nigel. I am the new executive director for First Five Marin, and I am excited to be here with you today. I am looking forward to working with Supervisor Lucan um, uh, this year, this coming year on the Children and Families Commission. I also want to thank Katie Rice and Dennis Rodoni for their past participation on the commission. It's been uh, great to have such leaders at the table moving forward the needs of our children and families here in West Marin. I'm actually here, though, just uh, to announce that we have a forum coming up tomorrow. Um, and it is the Children's uh, Mental Health and Wellness Forum. Um, it will be from 9 to 12 at the Embassy Suites. 
Um, we have incredible speakers and uh, panelists. Some of, uh, some of those uh, panelists are here uh, and work here in the county, like Director Matt Carter of Be Behavioral Health and Recovery Services. Um, we'll also have community-based organizations joining us and really talking about the needs of Marin's children and families, especially when it comes to behavioral health um, and wellness. And, and some of you may be asking, like, why are we talking about this in the zero to five space that the Marin Children and Families Commission holds? Well, we know, and the American Academy of Pediatrics knows, that many of the mental health disorders that show up in older children actually begin in those very important years of zero to five. And it's important for, I think, all of us to understand what early intervention can provide to families. It can provide a really strong start in regards to, um, in regards to being able to intercept some of those issues early on, um, be it developmental, be it uh, tools for families to use with their children. And so we want to encourage all of you um, to join us tomorrow. Um, this, this mental health crisis is a shared reality for many of us. It, it can hit close to home. If it hasn't hit you personally, it may have hit family members, it may have hit community members, and this is something I think important to talk about, especially in the younger years. Um, so let's make a commitment to our children, our children to increase programs and services for early intervention and mental health and behavioral health and increase funding. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome. Okay, if there's any further speakers, last call and then we'll go online. Okay, I'm not seeing any. Let's go online. I see four hands. Our first speaker is Albert Strauss. Please unmute. Hello. Oh, you can't see me. Anyway, hi. I'm Albert Strauss, uh, founder and CEO of Strauss Family Creamery. And I'm here today because I feel that our, my business, our, uh, what we built over the last 30 years as the first certified organic dairy and creamery west of the Mississippi River, and a farming and food system that has sustained our communities over the last 30 years is at risk. And, and my business is at risk because Point Reyes National Seashore, where we have two dairies supplying our creamery, uh, which is 15% of our milk supply, are at risk of being put out of business by Point Reyes National Seashore. I am the five organic dairies in Point Reyes National Seashore are 30% of our organic dairies in Marine, or of our dairies in Marine County, and we need to support them. We have a general management plan and a record of decision that allows for 20-year leases in the park, but the park is not offering leases to these dairies, and I feel that they have not negotiated in good faith. We need the county to intervene and support these farms and our communities. We've lost our rural communities. We've lost a lot of our farms, and, our, and I, I implore the Board of Supervisors, as our leaders in our communities, our elected leaders, to take a strong position and a leadership position in supporting these, these dairies and ranches in Point Reyes National Seashore that are essential to our community. Thank you. The next speaker is Dolores. Please unmute. Uh, 
can you hear me? We can hear you. Go ahead. My name is Dolores Dietz. I'm a mother of an addict, and I want to express some of my uh, issues with my son here in Marin County. On Memorial Weekend, he was released to the crisis center by the judge to have an evaluation. There was no doctor on for the weekend. He had been in jail for four months and was sober. There was no doctor on staff. There was no bed available, and there was no residential place for him to go. They do not take intake on weekends. He was released to the street with a bus ticket, picked up 24 hours later on drugs, and is now in jail again. At that time, he had been in jail for four months and was sober, but I was told that he was delusional. There was still no help for him. I have called many times to Behavior Health asking for guidance and what to do to help him. I'm given phone numbers with many calls. Buckaloo took two and a half weeks to call me back. Other uh, days, um, well, anyway, there is no longer a residential treatment in Marin for a person who needs psychiatric help or has a dual uh, drug issue. I am hoping that the um, grand jury report is really taken to heart and that we can come up with something. I have been fighting this for six to seven years here in Marin. On their report, they are not going to implement R3, and I believe it is an absolute must. Thank you. The next speaker is Reba Minks. Please unmute. today on behalf of the West Marin Food Systems Group to express our support of the West Marin Collaborative. Um, I want to thank Sarah Hobson and Daniel Del Monte and the Board of Supervisors for your continued support of the West Marin Collaborative. Um, we strongly believe that collaboratives strengthen partnerships, provide a space for community-based organizations to leverage resources, share challenges, and best practices. Um, collaboratives create enhanced communication, increased productivity, more efficient processes, stronger learning and development, and innovative and effective problem solving. Um, and to give you a little background of the West Marin Food Systems Group, um, we are built on collaborative and the collective impact model as we're dedicated to creating sustainable community food resilience by working collaboratively with schools, climate change groups, agriculture, nonprofits, government, healthcare, and safety net providers all to increase access to healthy food for low-income residents and older adults in West Marin. Um, particularly, our group focuses on three initiatives, community food, school wellness, farm to school, um, and medically tailored meals. Um, the West Marin Collaborative has been instrumental in helping our group work and kick off our medically tailored meal pilot program. It provided us an opportunity to connect coordinate and collaborate with the Coastal Health Alliance providers um, to create a streamlined referral process. This was key in reducing the wait time for clients to get a medical referral for medically tailored meals. 
We have 15 older adults now at the EAH Walnut Place receiving medically tailored meals, and we have created a new referral system for medical patients to receive the new Cal-AIM services that are on Medi-Cal. We are grateful to the Westmoreland Collaborative and the partners for allowing us to share our work and support coordination and implementation of our program. We strongly support the Westmoreland Collaborative and thank you for your continued funding. Thank you, and we'll be hearing this item a little later this morning, but thank you for these comments. We'll keep them in mind. Uh, next speaker, please. The next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. This Thursday is Peace Day. However, there is little peace to be found in the hearts of the refugees from the Maui massacre. They continue being deprived of any real substantive hope that they will be permitted to return to their land and restore their community. They ask where are the necessary resources to rebuild their homes so they might restart the lives they were once living and begin the grieving process to deal with the extreme trauma they have endured as individuals and as a community. Sadly, this dream of theirs is unlikely to occur. In a slip of the tongue, the true intentions of the government were revealed when Hawaii's governor said the future of Lahaina is to be a so-called smart city filled with what is euphemistically referred to as workforce housing. Gone is the natural, quaint, traditional, funky, small-scale, relaxed world of old Lahaina burned to the ground in the most suspicious manner, Lahaina had to be destroyed so that the sanctimonious world improvers could rebuild it back better in the image of the uptight, sterile, weird, angular, unnatural, heartless, self-alienating creations of modern architecture that they prefer. For those who are awake enough to witness this should be a warning to Marin. Thank you. The next speaker is Rodrigo Izquierdo. Please unmute. Uh, good morning. I want to talk about your proposal to have the Marin Human Rights Commission uh, participate in the studying of the sheriff acquiring a armored vehicle. It's, uh, you just can't do that because you have members of, the co of that commission who are committed and have connection with law enforcement. Like you have Heidi Merchant, who is the wife of a sheriff, a high-ranking official. You, can, you know, you're going to have a person of the sheriff's kind of deciding whether it's a good idea or not. You have... Charlie Dresso, who has connection to accounting and, you know, involving, you know, his work of over a million dollars. You have Curtis Akins, who uh, has a son who is a police officer. You have Jeremy Porger, the chair who is suing the, you know, uh, South Salido for $21 million. You have people in there who are intimately connected with, with the with law enforcement making a decision on the sheriff getting armored vehicles, you have to, if you're going to insist on using them, you have to ask them that these people, one, two, three, four, 
excuse himself. You cannot have these people, and there is is going to be a nothing more than um, a, a pro sheriff uh, group. You're going to have to compose something that is totally independent, has no connection to the sheriff, and then you can possibly have some kind of independent thinking. You would better be better off by getting the women's uh, committee to study the situation rather than the human rights commission. They can't even follow their own rules. Thank you. The next speaker is Eva. Please unmute. Um, thanks so much. I would second everything that uh, Mr. Izquierdo said. Uh, I would also point out that while Mr. Portage may in fact be suing the um, city of Sausalito and its police department, um, he has had very close uh, relationships with uh, members of San Rafael Police Department prior to and following that incident. And uh, there remain some, some questions about um, his his uh, reputation as a so-called activist slash reporter slash whatever. Um, I do want to point out that I see PRA correspondence between the county staff and NACOL, the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. This somehow has required county council uh, to extend the deadline so far four times. It's now due tomorrow. Uh, I note that Deputy County Counsel Stephen Robb's last letter to me about this detailed no fewer than six exemptions to disclosable documents. So at this point, it looks like when they finally get through all these extensions, I might be lucky to receive so much as a few emails regarding scheduling. I'd like to remind you that there were 12 meetings for the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Working Group that I had to CPRA because they were not made public. But per county council, only four of them were not destroyed. Per your staffer, Jamila Jordan, the destruction of eight videos was intentional. But per Nichols, Cameron McElhiney, it was merely a technical glitch. Either way, the public funded not only Nichols' costly contract, but paid for the overtime for county staff to facilitate the completely brain-dead meetings of the oversight working group. And every single one of those videos should have been available to the public. And here it's important to point out that the public was restricted even from attending the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Working Group meetings in person. So it's not just that there is an absence of recordings. Uh, one, of the four videos that were released by the county, uh, one of the most alarming things is the claim uh, made that they didn't have any data on arrest disparities. And of course, there's 32 years of data that I CPRA'd and every single one of those uh, working group members was aware of that. Uh, I had sent it repeatedly to them and they- Oh, they I'm sorry, we're at time, it. Eva. I, I've got to stop, thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. Okay. All right, thank you to all who made comments and public comment. We're gonna close comment now and move on to Board of Supervisors matters and updates. I'm gonna start with uh, Vice President Ladoni for his remarks. Thank you, uh, good morning. Last Friday, I attended the Latina in Power Luncheon with Supervisor Sackett, and Center Fell City Council Member Lawrence Gladi was honored for her leadership role in the Hispanic community. It was a well-attended event, and we had a good time. Um, I also would like to welcome Morgan Patton, who's in the back of the room, as my new aide. Morgan lives in Forest Knowles with her husband and family and brings a wealth of knowledge to my team. So. Welcome to Morgan. I have two adjourning memories today. Uh, James Jimmy Mendoza, a longtime dairyman in Marin Sonoma, passed away. He was 74 years old. 
and Rick Little, a longtime West Marin artist and editor for the IJ in the mid-90s, uh, reporter and editor in the IJ in the mid-90s, passed away. He was 96 years old. So thank you for those. Okay, Supervisor Sackett. Yes, thank you. So last week I had the opportunity to attend the San Rafael Chamber Business Showcase, which was a great um, event and really showed how San Rafael um, is thriving and the business um, community was all engaged. It was a great event. Um, another thing I want to bring up is that tomorrow evening from 6 to 7 p.m. there will be a Zoom online presented by the um, Community Development Agency talking about uh, priority sites pilot program um, from ABAG and I, it's an important discussion and I encourage people to tune into that. Um, information is available um, on the Housing Element website or I'll reach out to my office and I'm happy to share that as well. Thank you very much. Our Supervisor Rice and then Luca. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Um, let's see, a few things. Uh, one, it was a busy weekend all around the county and a beautiful weekend as well. Um, I attended a, a Firewise um, community event up at the top of Oak Manor, um, and I just want to sort of highlight uh, that one Firewise community is one of, I think, near 70 now across the county. And the work that the Firewise communities and their leadership uh, from, from group to group um, the work they do is so important um, in terms of really getting that neighbor-to-neighbor buy-in and cooperation and collaboration around taking all the steps we need to as property owners uh, and in our neighborhoods to make our homes as resilient and our landscapes as resilient as possible in the face of fire. And I just raised that today, not that it's not on everybody's mind all year round, but this is a really important time of year, September and October. This is historically when weather events come up out of the blue and um, so just a, a big thanks to those who are out there leading firewise communities and then encouragement for everybody to keep taking a look um, around their yard and around their homes over the next several weeks and making sure gutters are clear and um, we are always at fire risk and you don't get to get up on the roof and clean out your gutters uh, when there's a big wind event coming you got to do it the week before um, Secondly, just a porch fest in San Rafael was an amazing event. So kudos to the Gerstle Park community and everybody that was involved in putting on porch fest. It was amazing. It's a music event. Very, um, it's just a, an incredibly wonderful event. I'm so glad that that we've gotten through COVID and porch fest is back up and running. Um, and then lastly, I was at a, a Green Bay Property Owners Association annual picnic, and that whole Green Bay community is vibrant, full of families, and they, uh, a whole bunch of them showed up at that picnic, and thank you to the members of GPOA who um, lead that HOA, and then all the neighbors who, who participate in various community events there. And then uh, lastly, I do, um, do want to make a comment on uh, some of the public comment came up around um, folks that are here to talk about the, the seashore, and I just did want to mention that uh, I... Um, Supervisor Rodoni and I have been talking with our Ag Commissioner and um, David Lewis from UCC and, and uh, the CAO's office about drafting a comment letter on the Tomales Point plan. Um, it is, um, in my understanding, a, 
um, separate element um, and unique, and I do think it's appropriate that we do provide comment. It is the comment time right now, and um, we'll be discussing the, the issues that were raised by the members of the public today. Um, I personally, and just looking back on the history of the county of Marin, I mean, our the, this board and, and past boards support and interest in a strong, vibrant, resilient, um, and sustainable ag uh, sector in our county has been um, steady and um, a highlight and I think valued by residents throughout Marin County, whether you are involved in the ag community or not. Um, it is as much as about the food shed as it is about uh, the communities themselves that um, that are around those those um, that industry, and then also even the, the tourist aspect of it. Ag is a draw for many folks, and our ag lands and our working ag lands are something that this county has held high and important for many decades. So we'll we'll have some discussion later on. Thanks. Uh, two quick updates. Uh, last week, I had the privilege of speaking to the Marin Retired Teachers Association at one of their uh, luncheons, and I shouldn't be any surprise to us that our uh, we've got a really active retired teachers association group here in Marin that are uh, continually to stay engaged and looking after the best needs uh, in our community. Uh, the best part, they were recognizing some individuals that had some birthdays recently, many of which were in their 90s, and one retired teacher who had just celebrated her 100th birthday um, and uh, still actively engaged in our community. Uh, and then a second update for those uh, interested or tracking Highway 37, uh, Caltrans is hosting a hybrid public meeting this Thursday night in Novato from 6 to 7.30 um, to review the State Route 37 Flood Reduction Project Environmental Impact Report. Uh, that's a hybrid meeting that will be taking place at the Margaret Todd Senior Center, but also available uh, via Zoom. Uh, and you can get more information at resilient37.org. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, a couple of quick updates from me. Uh, prospectively, I am looking forward to the opening of the Marin City Wellness Clinic that will take place this week, and also uh, to the 65th anniversary of the Marin City Community Services District. There'll be a gala in Marin City on Saturday. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the County Administrator. Good morning, Supervisors. Just a brief update to highlight a two, am two amendments to the agenda. The first, when we get to the flood control agenda, uh, we will be asking for an urgency item to add back item 10D to the agenda. So on Thursday, 10D was submitted on the agenda. On Friday, DPW requested that it be removed, and so we um, posted on the agenda that this item would be postponed. Subsequent to that posting, uh, DPW staff has learned that we need to accept the grants to keep the project going forward, and so we'll be asking for an urgency item when we get to the flood control district uh, calendar. And then secondly, on that same calendar on item 10E, I just wanted to point out that we have posted the agreement for 10E on the agenda subsequent to Thursday's uh, posting. And so highlight that that's the link is available in our update memo as well as online. That's it. Thank you. We'll take public comment now on these reports. Is there anyone in the room who'd like to comment? I'm not seeing anyone. Is there anyone online who'd like to comment? Yes, first speaker is Emma, please unmute. Um, thank you. I. I just wanted to point out that uh, Supervisor Rice had 
uh, written a, a kind of glowing endorsement uh, for Marin Healthy Youth Partnerships. And um, I point this out because I attended the AOD board meeting uh, last Monday, well, not last Monday, but a week ago, and I was really surprised by uh, their presentation of the, quote, let's be average, end quote, campaign, um, which is was was created uh, by a marketing guy in response to what he calls the uh, CVS riots of November 5, 2022, um, when over 100 uh, white kids from Tam High uh, decided to stage, uh, you know, I hate to use the term riot, but I guess it was kind of a riot and a deputy was injured. Um, and there, there was very little response um, in terms of, you know, uh, bookings or fines, um, which is, is typical for how uh, white teens are, are treated um, in, in Marin County. Uh, Mr. Lehman's response to this was to come up with the Let's Be Average campaign um, because he wants to uh, encourage parents to stop bringing um, hard liquor and other alcoholic beverages to youth sports events. Um, and I'm just, I'm just kind of dumbfounded that the county would in any way uh, be funding uh, Marin Healthy Youth Partnerships to fund this um, campaign because it seems like this, there's really a serious policy issue if white parents, wealthy white parents who are on these segregated sports, who have their kids on the segregated sports teams are bringing hard liquor and other alcoholic beverages to these sports events. Uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the county, we rarely saw parents at sports events, and that's a much healthier approach, actually. Uh, but there should be yeah, uh, municipal laws uh, preventing you. Uh, Would you wrap up, please? From, from yeah. Thank you. to add uh, or respond to something that um, Supervisor Lucan said uh, the other, at your other meeting, and that was when he condemned the anti-Semitic um, demonstration in Novato. And I was just wondering, I really don't know the answer to this, but whether he's aware or all of you are aware that um, a reporter who, a journalist, Eva, who was attacked at the Human Rights Commission meeting by the chair's wife. And uh, I'm just wondering why he's still the chair and why you haven't really responded to that. So you're responding to First Amendment violation in Nevada, but you're not responding to something that happened in your own building, your own house, right here, your own building that you, uh, you didn't, you permitted pretty much permitted violence and you're okay with that by not saying anything then also are uh, you know I, you might have been mayor of Novato at this time when the caravan of 270 cars plus went to Novato City I mean went to Marin City and uh, to intimidate the blacks and call them names and they got into like a food fight and you know that they they were somebody had a gun you just know that and so in a way bloodshed was spared so again that was uh you could defend it as their first amendment rights to demonstrate even in the in the the backyard of the minorities and and again there was you know <laughs> you were silent so the thing is um 
you know, why are you so, um, you know, so okay with uh, and pro anti First Amendment for Novato, but not for the, the rest of the other areas? Thank you. The next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. This concerns um, Supervisor's Rice attendance at the Green Bay community event. And I'd like to ask whatever became of their petition, which garnered over 4,000 signatures, which is an awful lot of signatures in Marin County, opposing the location of the project Home Key project uh, on South Elysio Drive. It appears to have fallen on deaf ears more of the mem of the forgotten people. So I wonder at that event, if there was some reaction to uh, Supervisor Rice from the community uh, concerning um, the lack of, uh, I think, um, uh, just uh, feelings towards their concerns of that project being in that location in their community. Thank you. Thank you. We will move on now to item number three, consent calendar number A. I know I would like to pull uh, consent A for the disaster preparedness month resolution. Is there anyone on the dais who'd like to pull anything else? Senator? Not to pull, just to mention uh, uh, Coastal Cleanup Day is coming up and there's a resolution celebrating that. All right, very good. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, then let's see, we vote on consent, right? So let's vote on consent minus number four. Okay, is there a motion to approve? Thank you. Second. Okay, motion by Rice, second. Any by public testimony? Second. Public testimony and on public the testimony on the consent calendar. Not seeing anyone in the chambers, and I'm not seeing anyone online. There are no speakers in the chamber. Okay, we'll bring it back for a vote on consent A. All in favor? Aye. 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 Now I'm going to invite our sheriff and director of Office of Emergency Management. Excuse me, our fire chief, not our <laughs> sheriff. All right. Welcome, Jason. <laughs> Good morning, supervisors. Jason Weber, county fire chief. Uh, I think before I turn it over to Stephen Torrance, our fantastic director of emergency management, just want to highlight some of the investments and the sizable investments over the last five years plus um, and are, are you know, leaning forward towards a changing climate and being prepared. And uh, Supervisor Rice, I think, you know, spoke eloquently to the Firewise piece and how involved our communities are. But really in the last five years, uh, between our taxpayers approving Measure C, um, you know, the investment in our fire crews, uh, the investment in the Office of Emergency Management, we're investing annually over $26 million a year in preparedness and preparation. Um, and that's an investment before we have a disaster like what we saw in Lahaina or 2017, the North Bay fires or Paradise. Uh, that is a sizable investment across you know a bunch of different agencies. But your board's commitment to emergency preparedness, disaster preparedness, fire preparedness has been massive. Um, and it's leading the state um, in mitigation efforts. That means the work we're doing before a fire starts, before an earthquake, 
before another disaster in order to be prepared. And that means we're going to be that much more resilient. Our residents are going to be that much more resilient when a fire does occur or, uh, you know, we have significant flooding. Um, and that's a huge investment. So I personally want to thank you for your support and leadership in this arena. And I'll turn it over to Stephen, who's going to talk a little bit about what's happening this month around the county. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, good morning, board. Uh, thank you, Chief. Uh, Stephen Torrance, Director of Emergency Management for your Office of Emergency Management. Uh, first, I want to say thank you again, echoing what uh, Chief's statements are regarding the investments uh, that we've had here in the Office of Emergency Management. Uh, but mostly want to uh, make sure that I spend this time today to highlight dis uh, this month's Disaster Preparedness Month proclamation, which is before you. Uh, this month, we are not only there are other uh, pr uh, proclamations that are you know coming to celebrate September, but uh, we also want to highlight this month is Disaster Preparedness Month within Marin County, uh, but also throughout the nation. And today, we're you know uh, before you, you have a proclamation that not only aligns um, our office and the county with the cities and towns in Marin, but also the state and the federal government to uh, highlight the need for our senior pr uh, seniors to go out and do their part to, uh, to prepare for disasters. Uh, not only is this something that we're looking at the natural uh, events, but also our technological events. Uh, with that, being able to go out and make sure that they are uh, working with their loved ones, their family members, uh, their caregivers, to make sure that they are all prepared at various levels to be able to respond to any type of emergency. Uh, we know that we can have different type of, types of emergencies as we had the, earlier this year with the winter storms that came in, but also we can have our technological emergencies that are more like the power going off that disproportionately affect the members of our public, specifically if they are reliant on uh, assisted medical devices that need battery charging. Uh, those are the types of things that we are highlighting that we need to go out and make sure that we're uh, preparing our senior communities for. So uh, in addition to this proclamation, I'm happy to say that we're also leading the, with the emergency management coordinators throughout the rest of the county, the cities and towns as well, to make sure that we are doing a top 10 approach uh, to disaster preparedness for our, our seniors in the Marin County. So uh, the top 10, not only you can go online and you can print a checklist, but we've personalized it to say, making sure that we're highlighting the need to focus on your medication, making sure that you're highlighting the things that you can do to keep your assisted devices ready to go and also have a backup. Um, and so we're going out over the next couple of weeks and we've been doing so over this month to go over and talk about the things that we are doing not only um, here in Marin but also how the individuals at home can make sure that their homes are backed up. So uh, we do have a couple of more events. We've been at the Senior Preparedness Fair. I believe that we've been to about six or seven events uh, thus far and we have a couple more that are still ongoing. Uh, this week we're going to have an online Zoom for our caregivers to make sure that they know exactly what to do for um, for their, uh, their constituents that they serve. And then also being able to go out to Lucas Valley to meet with their, uh, their members of the public to make sure that they are equally prepared uh, to personalize a message, but also make sure the message is tailored to our senior population. So um, over the next couple of weeks, we will continue to have a push with our coordinators throughout the county uh, and the cities and towns as well. But I first wanna say thank you for uh, being able to consider this proclamation for the month of September. Uh, and I look forward to providing a, an update on our office at a later date uh, to highlight the efforts that we have going on generally with the investments that you've made for our office. Uh, so with that, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Director Torrance and Chief Weber for your remarks. Uh, you know, this is a short uh, resolution, but I think it's so important. Did you want to make another comment, Jason? Okay. Uh, then I'm going to read it. 
and uh, it, because it does underscore the focus on seniors, and I know that both seniors and preparedness are a big focus for this board. So uh, this is proclaiming National Preparedness Month, uh, September 19, 2023, whereas the National Preparedness Month is a call to action for all individuals, families, businesses, visitors, and nonprofit organizations to be prepared for disasters and emergencies. And whereas the County of Marin jointly supports and highlights the national theme, preparing for older adults in the recognition of the National Preparedness Month 2023, which specifically calls upon the community to prepare Marin's aging and adult communities who may be disproportionately affected by all hazard events. And whereas emergency preparedness in Marin County means all persons are e equitably connected to resources, educated on what to do before, during, and after a disaster, and aware of how they are empowered to respond to new and emerging hazards facing the communities. Whereas the County of Marin and partner agencies led by the Office of Emergency Management coordinate to implement disaster preparedness education, community training, planning, and outreach for communities of Marin. And whereas the Board of Supervisors seeks to build the capacity of the senior and aging populations within Marin County to become resilient to hazards which may be enhanced or prolonged due to climate change. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Board of Supervisors of the County of Marin hereby proclaims the month of September 2023 as National Preparedness Month and joins in observing the month with appropriate activities by calling upon all members of the community to take action and prepare their loved ones, neighbors, friends, and households by signing up for emergency notifications via alertmarin.org, assembling an emergency stay kit, and making a communications plan and checking with your go bags. So I'll entertain a motion in a second, and then if there's any questions, we'll hand it back to the chief. Is there a motion, please, to adopt the resolution? So moved. Okay, motion Madoni, second by Rice, all in favor? We, we do have public testimony online. Keep going by that. Public testimony, uh, Mr. Smith. <coughs> I don't think anything we can do to prepare for an event like what happened in Lahaina or Paradise. These were not natural events. In this regard, I'd like you to uh, view, refer you to geoengineeringwatch.org for a complete analysis of those two particular events of why I am making that statement. Concerning the evacuations, during the Lahaina event, first responders following orders blocked the exits and in fact rerouted those in vehicles back into the area of greatest danger, where most of them burned to death. Who gave those orders and who carried them out have yet to be identified. I will not forget this and I hope this country comes to terms with the fact that this is a national scandal. I mean, this is a national scandal. And um, I think people in the business of fire protection, you are probably some of the most well compensated people in public service in this country. Um, this is something that is a stain uh, on, on, on this whole 
enterprise of yours. And I really think that we need to come to terms, particularly with why those people were prevented from leaving and were in fact rerouted into a place where they were nearly certain to die. Thank you. The next speaker is Marie Wiskerto, please on me. Well, I want to comment that as a retired San Francisco Fire Department um, fire captain. Now, I have experience with the Loma Prieta earthquake and I have experience with um, Oakland Hills, Berkeley fires. Them, they're particularly, you lost over oh, oh, thousands, 2,000 2000 houses, you know, 500 apartment buildings. I'm gonna tell you exactly what happened. Now, you know those people are very uh, wonderful houses, <clears throat> very educated people. One thing that you gotta understand is that people panic. They panic. And those roads are gonna get blocked by someone panicking and someone having an accident and blocking the road. That's just a given, it's going to happen. You know, the fire engines are not gonna be able to go there. People are not gonna be able to drive out once that accident gets clogged, it's going to happen. You're gonna you're gonna have to deal with people walking out. That's exactly what we encountered in the Oakland Berkeley fires. You're gonna have to walk out. The same thing for the fires up north that happened. People, the fires block your view. The fire goes through the you know crosses the street. You cannot pass it. You're going to abandon your car. Your car is gonna catch on fire. It's going to run over, it's going to come off this, the road. People are going to have to walk out, and that's where you have casualties. So if you want to do something for Moran, the first thing you got to do for the unincorporated areas is you have to deal with the roads. They have to be wide. You have to enforce the roads and make sure that you have access for them to even walk around whatever's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. It's a given. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to bring it back. I'm going to ask our chief to, if he might comment on a couple of the public comments, and then we'll bring it back for a vote. Yeah, absolutely. Similar to your board's decision in 2017 to create a lessons learned subcommittee and look at what happened in 2017, we're applying those same factors to Paradise and other events to make sure we're contemporary in our decisions. Uh, we're around evacuation, evacuation planning. Uh, as a reminder, the Marin Wildfire Prevention Authority has made a sizable investment in evacuation planning that's helping us make decisions on the resources we have to expend them on the, the streets, the communities that are most threatened um, using the best science available to make those decisions. Uh, so that's an important piece of this and has been since the beginning. Um, the sizable investment we're making on evacuation routes from a vegetation management perspective, identifying one way in, one way out communities. Um, one of the things that wasn't mentioned yet is, you know, we know we can do better with Alert Marin signups. So, you know, this month is an opportunity and we're gonna be doing some, uh, a big push, uh, educational push again in the next six or so months on getting folks signed up on that. Uh, early alert and warning, early evacuation, and helping neighbors helping neighbor really is the idea of success and it's gonna take all of us to get there. 
So as we think about this month, it's important that we know our neighbors. You know, they're highlighting the seniors. Uh, those are the ones that are typically most affected uh, and those with access and functional needs. So we really should make sure that as neighbors, we leave no one behind. And then as systems we're putting in place, including the new dispatch center, the integration with the alert and warning, making sure that our alerts and warnings are as rapid as they can be, and that we're making sure people are getting out of the way of some of these fast-moving events. Thank you very much, Chief. Thank you. Okay, we've had a motion and a second to accept the resolution. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. And thank you to the Chief and to Director Torrance for joining us this morning and the work you do. That leads us now to item four, consent calendar B. Uh, is there anyone who wants to pull anything? Not seeing anyone. Uh, so we, I would entertain a um, public comment on this. Okay, thank you. Did someone move? I'll move the adoption of consent calendar B. Okay. Great, okay, motion second, second. Lucan, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. Aye. Item number five, a request from Health and Human Services Division of Social Services to authorize the president to accept a report regarding the Marin Age Forward Progress Report for 2018 through 2023. This is a five-year report. Good morning. Good morning, President Moulton Peters and members of the board, Lee Pullen, Aging and Adult Services, along with my right, Sarah Robinson, coordinator of Marin's age-friendly initiative known as Age Forward, and just behind me, if she can raise her hand, uh, Janae Cottrell, who uh, serves as manager of your area agency on aging, which you serve as our board of directors. Janae and Sarah have worked very diligently the past three years in coordinating the implementation of this plan, and I want to thank them for that. Five years ago, your board declared 2018 as the year of the older adult, and in that year applied and was accepted to the World Health Organization and its affiliate, AARP, to join the global network of age-friendly cities and communities. An age-friendly community is one that focuses its planning, policies, and programming to support older adults' quality of life in such areas as housing, transportation, health, health access, outdoor spaces, civic and social engagement, with respect and inclusion at the center of the, of the work in the community. Considering these factors when developing policy creates better conditions for older adults and creates communities that are livable for all ages, abilities, and backgrounds. As of now, the county, as well as seven of the 11 municipalities in Marin, are in the network, with others exploring how to craft their own age and disability-friendly planning and action. In January 2020, this board adopted the Age Forward Plan, and we set about working with your departments and community stakeholders to bring out many of the action items identified. This report marks the end of the county's first five-year commitment, and we will furnish it to AARP upon your acceptance. The report highlights work of departments that took action to address needs identified by the Age Forward 2019 Community Assessment in six domain areas, housing, mobility, community services, disaster preparedness, social connection, and with the six special attention paid to our unincorporated areas. We recognize and thank the departments that have taken such action uh, since, the, since the implementation of this plan. These include parks, the Free Library, Community Development Agency, Cultural Services, the UC Cooperative Extension, the DA's Office, Assessor Recorder, 
Fire, Public Works, and Registrar of Voters. We really appreciate their partnership in this work. The report also includes several actions not related to the Age Forward Framework, but that, but that have also advanced ways to recognize and attend to the needs of older adults and people with disabilities. Many of these separate actions grew out of the county's response to the COVID-19 pandemic as departments help those most impacted. Within these past implementation years, the departments and our partners developed innovative policies and programs. We also looked at the intersection of aging and equity. Some examples of some of the work that's happened, I'll give you three or four. Uh, the Community Development Agency continued promoting accessory dwelling and junior um, dwelling, accessory dwelling units. Um, we appreciated Sarah and I both being able to be involved in the housing element this go around, so we're looking at more options for older residents, their families and caregivers when it comes to housing. Marin Transit, through a community engagement process, created an innovation incubator, as it's called, for more accessible transit service options for rural residents and residents with disabilities. I was going to mention the fire department and what a great department uh, they have been in working with us, but I think that's self-evident this morning. We really appreciate their attention uh, to seniors and, and their special focus on older adults. Uh, another activity more recently, Age Forward, a partner this year with the new San Geronimo Valley's Elder Council to develop a strategic vision and a, uh, an assessment to help the valley be a more age-friendly place. So those are just some high-level examples of what has occurred. I know you've received a number of reports this year calling attention to the future and how much more needs to be done to support Marin's older adults. With that in mind, we have a proposal for approaching the future governance of this work. It's offered in page 22 of the report. So in coming to this proposal, we review different models of age-friendly design, governance, and overall impact, including, and this included discussions with different age-friendly leaders and elected officials across the country, actually. We took into consideration the recommendations made in the Integrated Aging Services Study back in January, the Grand Jury Report from May, as well as the current California's Master Plan for Aging. The first recommendation for this governance is to reassemble an advisory council that oversees any initiatives and meets at least twice a year, probably maybe more than that, to review actions. Members of the council may include Board of Supervisors subcommittee, should you wish to continue that subcommittee that oversaw this implementation, staff of the county administrator's office, department heads, uh, department directors and assistant directors, as well as our county's ADA coordinator. Of course, community stakeholders and residents, our Commission on Aging, Aging Action Initiative, and Marin Aging and Disability Institute, which is a partnership between Vivalon and Marin Center for Independent Living. The second part of the recommendation for this governance is to charge the council with assisting in determining which areas of need and opportunity are the greatest and which have the greatest impact across county departments and throughout Marin. For instance, could two or three priorities be selected on, say, a two-year basis that could be implemented in most or all departments? That's just one option for this council to consider. As your board looks to have county departments continue to make improvements in better serving older adults and future generations, deep appreciation is expressed to all of you here on this board with a special thanks to Supervisor Radoni and Rice for chairing the implementation subcommittee. A thank you to the county administrator for his support and leadership and, for all, and to all the organizations and people who have joined the effort to make Marin County more livable for all ages. We ask for your I vote in accepting this report and welcome any comments or questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lee. Are uh, there questions from the board? All right, I'm not seeing any. Very thorough report and also great to see your partners here today as well. So I'm gonna open to public comment on this item. Is there anyone, I see someone. Uh, uh, President of the Commission on Aging. 
Thank you, Supervisors. Um, Lee Notowich, I'm with the Commission on Aging. I'm the chair, and um, I just wanted to comment and appreciate um, the thoughtful work that was done on this report by um, Director Pollan and his staff on the Age-Friendly uh, Initiative. If we can continue this momentum um, with an age-forward lens, there will be great benefits to the older adult community in Marin. There was a lot of great work done, and I hope uh, it is not um, lost. Thank you to Sarah Robinson for all your leadership and vision and collaborative work that you built during your uh, tenure with the uh, Age-Friendly Collaborative. So thank you very much. Good morning, I'm Alexa Davidson, the Executive Director of the San Geronimo Valley Community Center, and I just wanted to give a huge shout out and thank you to Sarah Robinson for her partnership and her work with our Elders Advisory Council in San Geronimo. I think this report is extremely important, this work is really important, and I'm very thankful that it's happening on a county level. Good morning, Carrie Bierman, Social Services Director. I am here to support and celebrate this report and to offer my appreciation to the Aging and Adult Services team, especially Lee and Janae and Sarah. Um, thank you so much for this work. I also wanted to thank your board for your ongoing support of um, people in our community, older adults and people with disabilities. Um, I wanted to offer just a very brief update of some of the work that we're doing in Health and Human Services. We have committed, um, HHS leadership will be meeting on a regular basis twice a month starting October 4th with the older and disabled adult stakeholders. And the purpose of these meetings will be to implement the budget items that were approved in June by your board. Um, so at the table will be myself, Nicole Tyler, our chief strategy officer, and Daniel Del Monte from our county administrator's office. And this is with the support of our director, Benita McLaren, our HHS director. Um, our first order of business will be working on a job description for the ongoing position that was, that was approved. So we're very excited about that. And we also want to roll out the ageism and ableism training for all county staff. Um, so we hope to come back to your board in about six months with some updates and um, you know just some of the, the collaborative work that, that we hope to accomplish together. And we're just feeling very optimistic. This is a great opportunity to work in partnership. So thank you very much. Thank you. Is there anyone else here in the chambers? I'm not seeing anyone. We have commenters online, so let's go online. The first speaker is Susanna Sandowski. Please unmute. Good morning. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate being able to participate in this way. I wasn't sure if I would be able to come down to um, the Civic Center, so I wrote a letter to uh, Supervisor Radoni last night, and I would like to read that letter to you. It says, Dear Supervisor Radoni, in the event that I am unable to attend tomorrow's meeting in person, I wanted to let you know how much I applaud and appreciate the work has been done in that has been done in the county under the auspices of the Marin Age Forward Program since 2018. The progress report shines a light on the serious social, economic, and health issues facing our older population. Sarah Robinson is to be commended for her leadership 
in helping to encourage and advise the work in a number of age-friendly cities and towns in the county. Sarah has been extremely an extremely valuable resource for us here in West Marin in the formation of a new Elders Advisory Council in the San Geronimo Valley. The council is now meeting monthly and will be working to assess the needs in our community and to encourage the collaboration of our community organizations towards addressing these, those needs. I also want to thank you and the Board of Supervisors for its consideration of the request to approve a $235,000 contract with the West Marin Fund for a three-year pilot to support the resource model of the West Marin Collaborative. This support from the county will help our local non-governmental community organizations work together along with county agencies to improve the delivery of much needed services to seniors and people of all ages in our underserved coastal and inland rural West Marin towns and villages. We have the makings of an opportunity to move beyond our organizational silos that have hindered our ability to make more progress in many areas, particularly housing, transportation, and caregiving. I am looking forward to the next few years as we work towards new ways and new solutions to these multifaceted difficult problems. If not here, where? If not now, when? I am honored We're over to time. Thank you very much. The next speaker is Eva. Please unmute. I you know, I have to appreciate the hard work that went into this. I, I do have to wonder if Jimmy Sanders were alive, what he would make of this. Uh, Mr. Sanders was an elderly military veteran. Um, his, his RV that he was living in was seized improperly um, by law enforcement, leaving him homeless. He was then remanded with a bunch of other seniors into the deadly police run homeless internment camp under the freeway in San Rafael. Um, that camp was put together by Mike McGuire, uh, Damon Connolly, and um, the mayor of San Rafael, Kate Collin. <clears throat> the conditions in that camp were abject, according to the New Yorker magazine. <clears throat> Local media uh, did its best to whitewash um, the, the camp. Uh, it's an ongoing project to whitewash the conditions in that camp and to deny any investigation. Uh, Mr. Sanders died, became very ill in the camp and ended up in a cardiac ICU uh, and subsequently uh, died last July, um, still out on the street despite the fact that he had a voucher. So I would say the first thing for seniors is do no harm. Don't seize their RVs. They need them to live in when they have no other housing. Mr. Sanders deserved much better treatment. Um, you know, I certainly tried, um, but he is not the only fatality from that camp. Another elderly person died in that camp um, in 2021. And, and even when that happened, uh, there was still no health inspection by the county of the camp, uh, despite multiple requests um, for inspection. There was no running water. Uh, there was, you know, there was no electricity. There was, it was, it was unreal what people were put through. Okay, I ask again thank for you. an investigation. Thank you. Okay, next, please. The next speaker is Skip Schwartz. Please unmute. 
Well, hi, supervisors. Uh, thank you for this opportunity um, to join you uh, via Zoom. Um, I just want to um, also emphasize the positive element of the age-friendly uh, program adoption by the county and all the work that the county staff, Lee and all the county staff have done uh, to um, bring this forward. It's especially felt by the rural communities. Um, they really appreciate the counties uh, standing in there with the cities that have also become age-friendly. And there's a lot of work uh, yet to do and to be done, so I hope that uh, we can count on your continued support of this worthy effort. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. You know, in regard to seniors, I, I really think that it, there, it's important not to forget the abuse of seniors uh, during the COVID event uh, with the lockdowns that occurred and the program of social isolation. Not, not only that, but also the implementation of masking making um, the world we walk around in look like a kind of almost like a macabre extended version of Halloween or something. All these people wandering around in masks and forcing those of us, and I, I'm almost 80, to actually have to wear these face diapers that actually created uh, all kinds of issues for those of us who um, had to breathe through them. And if we resisted, were abused at the places where we went to shop. So these, pro these uh, protocols that were imposed on us actually came from that organization called the World Health Organization, which right now is trying once again to gin up another flu fear, and particularly uh, one that is uh, focusing on emphasizing people to get these new novel mRNA uh, vaccines um, that also caused so many problems and actually created much death and destruction among seniors who are the ones most vulnerable and um, who suffered the most from this program of vaccination. And so I hope we learn something from that when you're thinking about seniors also hope that you'd remember that and try once again not to do any harm. Thank you. President Mullen Peters, there are no additional speakers. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'm going to bring it back to the board for comments. Uh, Supervisor Rice is going to lead off. Yeah, Lee and, uh, and Sarah and Janae, thank you for all your work. And I forgot to mention in Supervisor's remarks um, around about attending an age-friendly age Ross um, last week, and it was a great event, and I know those are happening around the community. I think one of the most um, important and um, exciting, and frankly, one of the one of the things that makes age friendly so important and potentially um, uh, give it gives it muscle is that that it is there's a local network as well as the countywide. And in fact, I think these effort these kinds of initiatives um, are always have the most power when they're driven from the 
from the grassroots up. So anyway, um, really nice event in Ross last week. Um, I just want to thank you for all the work. I do, um, I do think it would be good to, uh, on picking up on your recommendations, to reassemble an advisory council. I think meeting twice a year is good. I think there's lots of great work going on across departments and in various organizations, but there is something to be said to sort of coming together. So um, if our board and the CEO's office is up for that, I'm, I'm, I would support um, reassembling sort of an advisory council just to meet a couple times a year, but I would also, um, and I would suggest that that be actually in, in person and allow for a little bit more free-flowing dialogue. Um, but I would um, look to my colleague on the subcommittee to support that. Um, I think that um, one, you know, that there's, there's that general age-friendly movement with specific recommendations, and then I think things come up that to me seem like real priority items. Um, uh, Chief Weber and our emergency Office of Emergency Management talking about this effort this, this week or this month around disaster preparedness with a focus on our senior and vulnerable community I think is really, really key. Um, it was um, raised a few weeks ago at a, one of our board meetings and has been raised to me since around accessibility um, and supporting folks with um, whether it's hearing challenges or what have you at public meetings and having our public spaces actually work better for our older and more vulnerable or folks with whatever um, uh, challenges. So I think really specific items to bring up are also helpful to us as well as the more general let movement around really applying a, an age-friendly and uh, lens to everything we do. And I think we need those reminders and I think it's just, it's a muscle that we are getting better at exercising, but um, I think the, the push is important. And those are my comments, thank you. And I'm happy to move acceptance of the report. Okay, Supervisor Rodoni. Yeah, I'm happy to second that and would just like to comment that, first of all, thank you to Lee and Sarah and the whole team at HHS for supporting this. Hard to believe it's been five years already. Um, <laughs> seems like it's gone so quickly. Um, it's amazing the work that we've done and what we've achieved, but I know there's still a lot more work to, do, to be done. I think you only had to show up at the senior fair a week or so ago to see the vibrancy of this, this aging community that we have and the support services that are out there. So I'm, I'm really pleased with the progress and I too support the advisory council. I think it's a great idea to keep everyone engaged and on an ongoing basis. Uh, much of the work is being done on the day to day, but the advisory council can certainly provide some leadership when there's bigger policy issues that need to be discussed. But uh, again, just thank you so much for the work you've done. Um, again, five years went really, really quickly for me and I probably did for you too. There was something called COVID in the middle of it that probably added to that. And uh, it's so nice to see you here in person, Sarah. I think it's been a long time since we did, we're off Zoom, you know, to see each other in person. But thank you so much for the work you've done. Great, thank you. Second. All right, super great. Supervisor Sackett. Yeah, a couple of things. So um, I want to thank Sarah for sitting down with me a month or so ago and kind of walking me through this report and also just the, the broader org chart of all the aging initiatives and organizations. Um, I'm s still learning, but really appreciated you spending the time. Um, one of the things I noticed in the report uh, is, is really pointing out the need to have more communications um, 
for our Hispanic and Latinx communities or Latino communities, but I also wanna just always think about other languages that we should be talking about and other communities that may not be as as big, but I think are really important to, tr to make an effort to try to reach. Um, I think this is one of the best reports we've we've seen in a lot of county work, frankly. I, I really appreciate how it brings together all of the work countywide that is focused on moving things forward and age forward. And I know from reading this, some of these things may have started directly in an age forward, forward um, convening, but also kind of may have started somewhere else. And I really appreciate, we oftentimes, you know, really say, well, that was, that happened in this department and that happened in this department, but I really appreciate how you brought it all together to show how much work the county does on these issues, and we don't oftentimes bring it all together. Um, so I really appreciate that. I also really appreciate the page on the barriers and challenges, and I think there's lessons in there for not only this work, but across the board of, you know, it, I think it's just a great advocacy and sort of awareness page and <laughs> encourage everybody to look at it again of just, you know, that organizations are approaching different people in different departments and different departments and staff are also approaching organizations and not knowing that who's working with who and so kind of maybe creating redundancy or miscommunications or duplicated efforts. Um, so I think just keeping a focus in this work on how do we know what people, I mean, I think even within health and human services, there's so much going on and how do we keep aware of what others are doing so that we can work in tandem and um, not separate. And just the you know notion of sometimes like the issue of upward mobility communication and how that can, can make work with easier or harder, um, and the direct access to who can make the decision makers. I really appreciated that, that page in your report pointing those challenges out. And finally, just um, kudos and very proud of this work that, that Marin is one of 11 counties in the state who've done this. So um, pat yourselves on the back and thank you for the report. Fantastic, Supervisor Lucan. Actually, I don't have anything else to add. These were great comments. I really appreciate all the work that went into this. Thank you. Agree, all the way around. Really wonderful to see the progress and the integration of all the groups. Uh, and I also want to compliment uh, Carrie Bierman on the internal coordination that's going to be happening on a regular basis. I think that's really a good thing. So all going in the right direction. I agree with the idea of an advisory, reconvening the advisory council. Uh, so uh, you can bring that back to us, I think. And with that, we have a motion and a second to accept the report. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, thank you very much, one and all. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. The next item is number item number six. It's a request from the county administrator's office to approve a $235,000 contract with the West Marin Fund for a three-year pilot to change the resource model of the West Marin Collaborative. Good morning, Madam Chair and Madam President, and members of the board. Uh, Daniel Del Monte, Deputy County Administrator in the CAO's office. 
and it's my pleasure to present a recommendation to you regarding the West Marin Collaborative with an opportunity to change some of the resource model in rural areas of the county. Next slide, please. Daniel, can you pull that microphone closer to you sure. just a little bit? Thank you. So through a brief presentation, I'll be providing a background on the West Marin Collaborative. I'll discuss the recent need that arose to develop a plan for its transition. Lastly, I'll offer the recommendation with a proposal to support a transition plan in partnership with the West Marin Fund. Next slide, please. For the past decade, the West Marin Collaborative has developed into a critical community forum where local partners come together to share information regarding unique resident needs to West Marin. Service providers come together to highlight challenges they face, to solve problems that arise or are ongoing, and to share resources and coordinate services to meet any identified West Marin specific needs. Next slide, please. This slide highlights some of the key subpopulations that are the common focus of the collaborative. For example, supporting older adults with access to services, transportation and housing, supporting school-aged children and families with similar or other service needs, non-English speaking households, immigrant and farm worker residents as well, disaster preparedness. There are others too. These are specific needs and subgroups in West Marin that provide a good general overview of the overall focus of this effort that serves uh, the variety of, of villages across West Marin. Next slide, please. The West Marin Collaborative has been facilitated by Maria Niggle for over a decade as an unpaid volunteer, and most recently as a staff member of the Marin Promise Partnership. As your board heard earlier, Ms. Niggle recently accepted the position as First Fives Executive Director, which is very exciting for her, as well as the lives of young children and families across the county. As it became evident that a transition plan was needed, a group of West Marin Collaborative pillar organizations held a series of meetings to consider how we could work together to continue the work of the collaborative through a transition plan. A key issue that became evident was that Maria's role was, was really volunteered. There was no funding for the role and all other participants in the collaborative have full-time jobs. So any succession plan thoughts had questions of sustainability of the effort. Next slide, please. While these transition plans were occurring and I began participating sometime around February of this year, a list of other ongoing West Marin specific needs were being discussed in other community partner circles, as well as in one-on-one -on -one conversations that I had with service providers and constituents across West Marin. For example, I've heard pretty consistently of a strong desire for technical assistance for service providers to build provider capacity. There's been reference to an increased need to coordinate grant funding between county, local foundations, and other funders hopefully reducing administrative burden where possible by coordinating reporting and tracking requirements, and also ensuring the biggest community impact possible by coordinating those funds together. Lastly, there was a recommendation in the Integrated Aging Services Study to change the resource models for services in rural areas for older adults. Given these other needs and considerations, and while discussions were occurring to transition to succession plan for the West Marin Collaborative, it became clear that the group was at an inflection point that could possibly move forward the work in the collaborative in perhaps an enhanced way by taking it to the next level through considering these other desires and needs referenced on this slide. Next slide, please. In addition to the considerations on the last slide, another key opportunity also presented itself, which led to the recommendation before your board today 
and that's through a potential strategic partnership with West Marin Fund. West Marin Fund is one of several pillar organizations that participate in the collaborative, and over the past year, they've completed an organization strategic plan that will guide their coming years ahead. Through that effort, they've been working toward an approach for supporting a more participatory process for distributing grants to providers across West Marin, with the goal of working with providers to define community needs across all of West Marin's individual villages so that local providers can inform where gaps in services are from their lived experience. Through identifying these needs, this then would allow the providers to recommend how funding would be offered to target the identified community areas and for West Marin Fund to then develop grants and distribute them to offer new service opportunities while tracking outcomes and measuring progress along the way. The intent would be for the cycle to occur and reoccur on an annual basis as building blocks to make progress, measuring it, tracking it, refining it throughout the years ahead on an annual basis. Next slide. The proposal before your board is a partnership with the West Marin Fund in Marin County where the county would provide a one-time funding amount of $235,000 over a three-year pilot period. So this would be a pilot program. Funds would go towards supporting cost of a position in West Marin Fund to facilitate the collaborative, coordinate and plan for upcoming meetings, thereby maintaining the critical infrastructure of the collaborative through a succession plan. Taking the collaborative to the next level, a, a portion of the county's funds would go toward service grants targeting underserved populations in West Marin, including Marin residents aged 60 and older. And lastly, one-time funds would go toward technical assistance to be offered to the nonprofits that participate in the collaborative. Next slide, please. In summary, the pilot approach seeks to add a consistent paid role to facilitate the meetings for sustainability, but the staff person being full-time can also support some potential task force or subcommittee meetings that may naturally evolve out of the collaborative's work. The pilot approach seeks to capitalize on the experience of its provider membership, adding capacity for targeted grants that uh, all based upon a participatory grant-making process. It adds multiple annual grant uh, cycles through the collaborative that haven't occurred prior, taking the expertise and boots-on-the-ground information from West Marin organizations and using that to define what services are needed through the ongoing grants, and then using that to, to define scoring tools and how grant applications would then be scored uh, from providers. New funding opportunities and participatory processes may encourage more providers to attend these meetings from across West Marin to further coordinate new and more organizations together. And the pilot program has the potential to improve and change the resource model for all subpopulations which can be utilized to leverage philanthropic and other outside grant sources in a coordinated way to sustain as much of the work as possible thereafter following the three-year pilot period. Next slide, please. In terms of next steps with your board's approval today, the first step would be for the West Marin Fund to launch a recruitment for the new position. Once onboarded, the following step would be for the technical assistance approach to be developed with the staff person facilitating its development in close partnership with the organizations that attend those meetings. And lastly, the final step would be to launch the first of the ongoing grant cycles that would begin for the next three years between April and June of 2024. Next slide, please. That concludes the presentation, uh, recommending to approve $235,000 for the three-year pilot program. And I will be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Great presentation. Thank you. I'm going to turn to Supervisor Adoni for any questions and then to my colleagues. 
Um, I don't have any questions at this time, so I can go to my other colleagues. One quick question, Daniel. Would the, for this new position, would that person be a county employee? The position would be West Marin Fund staff. Okay, thanks. Any questions down here? All right, thank you. Uh, I don't have any questions. Great report. I'm going to move to uh, public comment now. If there are people who'd like to comment here in the chambers, please come on up and then we'll go online. Great. All right, everybody. Good. Hello, Alexa Davidson, Executive Director of the San Geronimo Valley Community Center. I want to share extreme excitement for the new version of the Westmoreland Collaborative that we see ahead of us, and a huge thank you to Daniel Del Monte for really listening to our community and understanding the needs of West Marin. West Marin is a large geographic area, and a lot of nonprofits serve that area, and the Westmoreland Collaborative has been a key function in helping us to work together to solve some of the most critical issues that are facing our communities. And it's really exciting to see the um, idea of having real um, leadership and resources behind this effort. What became really clear during the pandemic in particular is that there was a lot of funding designed to go to West Marin, yet um, there are systems for how we share those resources equitably across our entire um, region were not really in place. And the West Marin Fund did an incredible job of supporting that effort, really coordinating services, coordinating organizations, and providing leadership. So this is a natural fit for me to see the West Marin Fund be a part of this and be um, spearheading this leadership. So I want to say thank you to Sarah Hobson for all of her work. I also want to share that um, that collaboration is the only way that we can really serve our communities. And so it's a really exciting thing to see. And finally, I want to thank Maria for her years of service and excitement for her new role at First Five Marin. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Will Bartlett. I'm the executive director of the Bolinas Civic Group, which is probably one of the newest uh, nonprofit uh, groups in West Marin supporting communication, collaboration, and community. Um, as also probably the newest organization as the member of the West Marin Collaborative, um, I've been excited to see the opportunities and the availability of resources and um, groups that are working to solve the, some of the most difficult problems that West Marin faces. Um, it's been a large, um, exciting explosion of information that I've seen, um, and I'm extremely um, enthused about the opportunity of the county being involved directly in helping to shape the future of West Marin support. Um, I also want to thank Supervisor Rodine's office uh, for being a great supporter of the organization. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Next, please. I just want to thank the supervisors for even considering um, this proposal. I think um, when this was started many, many years ago, we had no idea uh, the momentum that it would have. And I want to acknowledge West Marin Community Services as founding partners, the Marin Free Library as founding partners, and the space that the Free Library provided as being so important to having civic engagement in the way that the collaborative has been able uh, to have it. So I want to acknowledge that. I just also want to um, acknowledge Sarah Hobson for her support over the years and the West Marin Fund for their support over the years. Um, I want to thank Daniel Del Monte for coming in and, and helping us dream of something bigger. 
Um, and I just really appreciate the vision and his work in other rural areas and what he was able to bring to the discussion and the thought partnership. This is a meeting that was born of community for community. This is exactly what we hear about and what we want. And so I just want to um, say, and I'll try not to tear up, uh, thank you to all of those who've participated it, in it. Thank you for all of those who have put um, their energies into it. And thank you to the supervisors for considering it. This is important work. This is about collaboration. This is the spirit of West Marin. This is how we do things and how we've been able to accomplish things together. So thanks. Good morning. Uh, I'm Sarah Hobson, Executive Director at West Marin Fund. Um, I'm happy to be here and delighted that you're considering this uh, request and proposal. So the nonprofit sector in unincorporated rural West Marin plays a key role in providing essential services to underserved populations. We face significant and growing challenges, and we do rely on the West Marin Collaborative to better understand the issue and jointly develop solutions. The interest of and support of the county and the Board of Supervisors are encouraging and constructive. And I would particularly like to thank Deputy County Administrator Daniel Del Monte for his active engagement in helping to develop and conceptualize the next phase of the West Marine Collaborative. Special thanks also to founder Maria Niggle, um, to uh, the many partners who participate in the West Marine Collaborative and with whom we work. Um, and I would like to let you know that the Board of West Marin Fund is really committed to this initiative and has recently approved funding for our contribution to the collaborative, um, particularly for staffing, for technical assistance, and for grant making. And for us, this is a huge opportunity to increase both the size and amount of grants going out to serve and support um, underserved uh, people and populations in West Marin. So I request that the Board of Supervisors accept and approve the proposal in front of you. Thank you very much. Lee Nodowich with the Commission of Aging. Um, I want to um, put a big um, thank you out to people like Maria Nickel for, uh, Nagel, I'm sorry, for all her work that she does in the community. The volunteers really putting their time and efforts and making a difference, um, it's huge. Um, a big thank you to Daniel uh, Del Monte for his leadership and vision, and um, hopefully the boards of supervisors will um, support this West Marin uh, bud, uh, pilot project. It's very visionary and will benefit all of West Marin, and we feel like there'll be a lot of benefit to um, older adults as well. Uh, West Marin is um, obviously underserved, and this uh, will help the community be more resilient. So um, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful to see this kind of visionary um, programs in, in Marin County and um, hope to see a lot of success from this program. Thank you. Hi, Chloe Cook, West Marin's multi-service center. I'm the manager there and I'm really, what more can I say? I mean, it's amazing that this kind of collaborative approach but yet specifically for West Marin is coming forward and before you and I really encourage you to approve it. It's been over a little over a year since I've been managing out there and the West Marin Collaborative is the one collaboration that brings all the different sectors together where we can discuss the environment, we can uh, dis discuss food systems, we can discuss 
HHS services and the delivery across the, the very different communities, especially along the coastal corridor and into the Chileno Valley, very difficult to reach communities, multiple languages. It's really exciting to see this collaboration being supported by the Board of Supervisors in Lynn County. Thank you guys. Okay, seeing no further comment in the public, uh, here in the chambers, anybody online? President Walt Peters, yes. We do have Clayton Smith, please unmute. I think the most pressing issue that West Marin and all other communities similar to it uh, need to pay attention to are the plans of the World Economic Forum to eliminate these kinds of what they refer to as human settlements. The recent campaign to eliminate the small farming communities in the Netherlands is a prime example, as well as the acts by the climate alarmists at the World Economic Forum to eliminate the dairy farms in Ireland. I'd hope that the folks living out in West Marin pay very close attention to these developments because the future survival of your communities is at stake. They have put these globalists uh, who are running the world, it seems right now, have put your kinds of communities in the crosshairs. And um, what will remain of them even 10 years from now in the future is, is very much in play and in doubt. Thank you. Thanks. Speaker is Skip Schwartz, please unmute. Um, thank you, Supervisors. I'm uh, Skip Schwartz, the Executive Director of West Marin Senior Services. And um, I er encourage you to support this initiative. It's uh, creative and uh, groundbreaking. Um, and I want to thank uh, Sarah at the West Marin Fund uh, Daniel DeMonte from the uh, administrator's office and Chloe and all those who worked on it. Um, and we look forward to working with you uh, for the benefit of the older adults in West Marin. As you know, West Marin's a large area, 65% of the county uh, landmass and uh, only 5% of the population. Uh, so transportation and other logistics are a challenge across all of the areas, but especially for older adults. And um, so, uh, we, you know, we, lo we look forward to this, to this work. Um, and um, I also want to appreciate uh, Maria Nagel, who uh, held down the collaborative for so many years, uh, heart and soul. Um, what a great lady and wish her all the, all the, the best in her first five um, directorship. Great. So, um, Thank you. Please support this. It's a good one. And uh, senior Westman Senior Services will be in there collaborating. Thank you. Thank you very much. The next speaker is Suzanne Sadowski. Please unmute. Thank you so much again. I, I also, earlier I, I said I hope that you would consider this uh, proposal and I think it's really essential that this happen uh, for, for us in, in West Marin, but also as a way to demonstrate ways that we can work collaboratively 
I also want to say how much I appreciate everything that Maria Nibble has been doing in order to raise awareness of so many issues in our West Berlin community. I first met Maria Nigel when I was at working at the community center in San Geronimo on the first five program. And she has been a shining light in every part of her, her life and in her work. So thank you very much. And please do approve this uh, wonderful uh, proposal. Representative Mullen-Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. We'll bring it back now to the board for some discussion. I'll turn to Supervisor Rodoni. Yeah, thank you, President Mullen-Peters. I think you saw a sample of the tremendous talent that we have in West Marin today with the speakers and people online. And I think what's nice about what we're doing today is finally we're giving them the resource and the administrative capacity to actually move to the next step. And I think that's, that's the wonderful thing about what we're doing uh, here today. But I need to call out Maria one more time because she kept the vision alive uh, with her volunteer work and then the work at Marin Promise. And hadn't she done that, we wouldn't be able to be here today. So thank you so much, Maria. And then lastly, um, you know, stepping up now with uh, Sarah from the West Marin Fund and everything they're doing and Daniel from the CAO's office to take us to the next step is so, so important. So I wholeheartedly support this proposal and look for the growth in this area and look for the successes that we'll see over this pilot period. So thank you so much for all the great work. Appreciate it. Thanks from the board. I'm very excited about what's coming before us today. I am really glad to uh, honor and appreciate the work of the West Marin Collaborative and all the member organizations. It's great to see us give more support and shape and definition to what a partnership with the county and the nonprofits out there can look like. It's a issue of particular interest to me in my own unincorporated areas. I see it as a creative model uh, and thank you, Daniel Del Monte, who's come on board for, with us to shape uh, the service delivery to the unincorporated areas. And so I see this as a model of ways that we can work together uh, to bring service to our unincorporated areas uh, and the kind of public-private partnership and government nonprofit partnership that can really be valuable in these communities. So I want to second uh, the recommendation to uh, approve this item. And uh, with that, I will um, also thank our county administrator for pulling this together with Daniel and the whole team. And Maria, you have your fan club out there, and it is well-deserved, that is for sure. So uh, with that, we have a motion, Rodoni, a second by Moulton Peters. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. That carries, and that uh, contribution is going through. Okay, we will now move to item number seven. This is our grand jury report on Marin's behavioral health services. And uh, we'll welcome back our behavioral health director. Yes, uh, good morning. I'll just kick us off and I'll turn it over to Dr. Shermer for, uh, for uh, an overview of our response. I wanted to thank uh, the 
um, mental health director for their work on helping us draft this response for the board, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you, and we're happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Matthew, and good morning, supervisors. Uh, my name is Todd Shermer. I'm the director of Behavioral Health and Recovery Services. Uh, we are a division of Health and Human Services. Uh, before I begin, I would like to thank the Civil Grand Jury for their investigative work, uh, with many dedicated volunteers spending countless hours looking into our complex systems and making actionable recommendations. Their commitment to oversight is invaluable to our community. Uh, this investigation has shed light on several noteworthy issues that warrant our immediate attention and action. We recognize the importance of addressing these matters promptly to ensure that all calls for help are answered. Uh, while we greatly value the efforts of the civil grand jury, it's, it is important to note that like any complex undertaking, there may be areas where their findings require further context or clarification. Over the past year, since the initiation of the civil grand jury's work, um, Behavioral Health and Recovery Services, I'll say BHRS for short, has witnessed a multitude of changes, including the broad implementation of California Advancing Innovations in Medi-Cal, that's CalAIM, and associated reforms to the Medi-Cal system, a new electronic health record, new requirements for data exchange between healthcare providers, and new state mandates for 24-7 mobile crisis and care court. These developments have significantly shaped our approach and continue to guide our actions moving forward. Uh, moving now to the report, uh, the civil grand jury made nine findings and five recommendations. Of the nine findings, we agree with four and either wholly or partially disagree with five. I, rather than review each finding, I would like to make some general comments about BHRS's mandate and the role of 988 in our system. BHRS oversees the public behavioral health system, meaning a network of county-operated and contracted programs and services. Our primary role is to serve individuals who are low-income Medi-Cal recipients or those who are uninsured and also have serious mental illnesses or serious substance use disorders. A majority of our budget goes to serving that safety net population. However, we do dedicate approximately 14% of our budget to services to the entire Marin County community. That includes approximately $3.1 million on prevention and early intervention activities, such as our Suicide Prevention Collaborative, school-based behavioral health, and older adult, old, excuse me, older adult-focused outreach services. This also includes approximately $8.6 million in crisis intervention services, including our 24-7 crisis stabilization unit and our mobile crisis response team. These PEI and crisis programs are open to any Marin County resident. The Civil Grand Jury made a number of comments and findings about the role of 988 in Marin County. By way of background, 988 is a nationwide initiative to create an alternative to 911 for people who are experiencing behavioral health crises. This launched in July of last year. California funded the launch of 988 with an initial $20 million investment. This money was directed to an existing network of 13 suicide prevention lifelines including our local provider, Buckaloo Programs, who services multiple counties through their lifeline. This funding was not directed to nor administered by the county. Ongoing funding, including funding for in-person mobile crisis response, was included in Assembly Bill 988, which was signed into law last year. As of today, we have not received any funding from Assembly Bill 988. A BHRS has historically supported the operations of the Suicide Prevention Lifeline through our Mental Health Services Act plan. And this year, we increased our funding to $165,000 per year. 
This funding goes to Buckaloo programs for the management and operations of the 988 lifeline and is only one portion of their overall funding for the lifeline. Buckaloo programs is an independent nonprofit and operates separately from BHRS. While it is our shared goal to work closely with Buckaloo to ensure seamless coordination uh, for individuals in crisis, BHRS does not have fiscal nor operational, operational control of the 988 lifeline in Marin County. Last, the civil grand jury noted challenges with call responses to our access hub. The access hub is intended to, be, to serve as a single point of entry for BHRS services. This is a priority area of improvement for BHRS. Uh, moving now to the five recommendations of the civil grand jury. Two of the recommendations are accepted and will be implemented in the future. Um, on the document posted online, that's R2 and R5. First, the civil grand jury recommended BHRS develop a new public awareness and educational outreach campaign promoting the 988 lifeline. BHRS has participated in numerous community education panels about 988, including one tomorrow, and plans additional outreach this year. This fiscal year, we have budgeted $55,000 in marketing uh, for our suicide prevention efforts. Of that, $45,000 is directed to marketing and outreach on 988. This is in addition to any advertising or marketing tools created or leveraged by Buckaloo programs, the state of California, or national programs through the National Alliance of Mental Illness, or SAMHSA. Second, the civil grand jury recommended that BHRS develop a plan and operating budget to transition our mobile crisis response team to 24-7. Consistent with state mandates, BHRS will be submitting an operational plan to the state in October, and we are targeting December 31st of this year for the launch of 24-7 mobile crisis services. Two of the recommendations of the grand jury will not be implemented because they are not warranted or not reasonable. Um, on, on the list, that's R1 and R3. First, the civil grand jury recommended that BHRS develop a plan to utilize the 988 lifeline as a one-call, one-door entry for behavioral health services. As I noted before, BHRS has an existing contractual relationship with Buckaloo programs to support the 988 lifeline, but the county only provides a portion of the overall funding for 988. Furthermore, 988 is only for individuals seeking help while in a behavioral health crisis. It is not for individuals seeking planned outpatient behavioral health services. Uh, this would be analogous to someone calling 911 to request an outpatient medical appointment. While we agree that 988 has an important role in our system and we value our relationship with Buckaloo programs, we also recognize the need for our access hub to serve as the primary entry point for outpatient behavioral health services. Further, for individuals who are privately insured, the primary entry point for outpatient behavioral health services will necessarily be their health insurance company or health maintenance organization. Second, the grand jury recommended the creation of a new behavioral health crisis services department within BHRS, comprising our crisis stabilization unit, mobile crisis response team, access hub, and 988. Uh, this idea does have appeal, however, it would require substantial reorganization of BHRS and would require additional management and administrative staff. All of the relevant county-operated programs of that list, that's the Crisis Stabilization Unit, Mobile Crisis, and our Access Hub, report up through the BHRS organizational structure and are part of the same division of Health and Human Services. 
The 988 is a program of Buckaloo programs and is not a part of BHRS. BHRS is currently engaged in active discussions about organizational efficiencies focused on improving timeliness at our access hub and expanding our crisis services. Last, one recommendation from the grand jury does need additional study. The grand jury recommended the creation of a plan to improve data utilization and outcome reporting across multiple programs and systems. As I noted in my introductory remarks, we are in the midst of several substantial changes in BHRS, including a new electronic health record and numerous changing state regulations governing our work. While we agree with the grand jury's recommendation in concept, we expect to complete an analysis of the various data sharing and reporting mandates, as well as the technological capabilities of our new electronic health record. We expect this work to be completed within the next six months. So thank you for the opportunity to provide input into this process, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Back it, and we'll go down the line. Thank you so much for the report. Um, so a couple of high-level questions and then more details. At a high level, how does somebody access mental health services within the county? Are you asking for somebody who has Medi-Cal or just a general person in our county who doesn't have Medi-Cal? Both. Both. So our access hub is open to the public. It's, um, it's open from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, and we also answer the phone 24 hours a day through a call, um, a call center. So if somebody is seeking uh, behavioral health services, whether from the county or not, they can call that access hub and complete a screening with one of our staff. If they are privately insured, um, the staff would probably make a referral to them uh, to their private health insurance company or a medical provider. Um, but if they are on Medi-Cal, then our, our team would then schedule an intake assessment and that would get them enrolled in services at the appropriate level of care. Are we tracking how many calls um, that we are able to answer on the access line and how many of them come in during other hours that we're unable to answer you know, until the following Monday or following morning? Yeah, we keep data on all of our calls to access. Okay, and is that showing that we're meeting the bulk of the calls with the hours of operation? So uh, the grand jury does note that there was uh, too few calls were answered. Um, I think it was somewhere in the vicinity of 40% of calls to access were answered live. Um, it, is a, it is a challenge for us right now with our staffing and uh, the, simply the demand at access. And so it is our goal to at the very least return calls when people um, do call for information or call for an assessment. Um, one, one thing that we're exploring in order to improve our responsivity to callers is the use of a call center model so that somebody can um, be directed. If they're just calling for information, for example, they could be directed to a voicemail and then someone would call them back. But if they have an urgent need, then they could actually get a person live. Okay. Um, and is that part of kind of this overall look over the next six months on? Yes, that's okay. correct. Okay. Um, I guess I, I appreciated the deep dive from this report, it also showed kind of how disjointed it, it appears the system is, at least from the outside. And I know that there's a lot of reasons from that, for that, funding, who provides the service, et cetera. Um, some of that's in our control and some of it isn't. So I look forward to the work, 
you know, over the next six months of how we can coordinate and really just make ease of use for somebody who's in this situation to um, access the services, kind of the driver. Um, because frankly, I don't know at this moment if, if needed, would I call the access line, the 988 line, which one would I know about and how would I find it? Or, you know, a private medical provider. So I just think we can, it, it's a complicated scheme, but the more we can do to make that a one-stop place for people to get information. And so my final question on that is how are the, are the different entities referring to each other? So if I call 988 and it's not actually a, you know, a de-escalization, but it's a need for services, is there a direct line to, direct referral to the access line or to mobile crisis and vice versa amongst those. So with the with the launch of 988, we've um, held regular meetings with Buckaloo programs, the operator of 988, to, to and actually with the 911 dispatch centers as well to to try to uh, clarify those pathways. So if somebody calls 911, for example, but they're really looking for a behavioral health appointment, how do those referrals get made? So at this time, it's a bit of a manual process. So if somebody calls 988 and they do need a, an in-person crisis response, for example, um, 988 will call our mobile crisis team to, to request dispatch. Um, it's our goal over time to have shared data systems so that 988 could actually um, directly dispatch our teams. And then also thinking of the public comment earlier today and just our, our service providers also coordinating as far as you know, the, I think the comment was discharge on a Friday, but 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 you know, treatment not available till Monday to make sure that we're thinking through those gaps as well. Yeah, so we do have regular case coordination meetings. I'm not sure what happened with that particular situation, uh, but certainly uh, that that isn't something we're looking for. That somebody would be be discharged with no care. Um, so we would look for um, clear follow up and warm handoffs to the next level of care. And, and even timely or, you know, not avoiding weekends, I guess, or Fridays. Yes. yes. Okay. Thank you for the work. I, under, I, I know how much work is being done and really appreciate it um, and appreciate the look at how we can make it better. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Todd, for the report. Um, just wondering, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting to know the volume of the calls because I don't know if we're talking about 10 calls a day or 1,000 calls a day. So like when you're talking about 40% of um, the access team, I guess it is, is being answered, what does that leave unanswered, I guess is my question. And so we don't have to have that right now, that answer. It'd be interesting to see some of that data to see how severe the problem is, how many we are missing, um, because you know it's hard to sit here and, and estimate or, or judge what how good a job we're doing without knowing some of that data. So. Yes, I, I agree. I, I don't have the numbers in, in front of me, but that is in, that would be no, good to know how many calls are coming during the day and then on the overnights and then what is the disposition of those calls. Yeah. Todd, thank you. Um, and I really, uh, I do appreciate the, um, the responses and the really fleshing out of the responses because it's so unsatisfying, you know, the parameters in terms of the language you get to use in terms of the ultimate response. I think that um, my 
my takeaway uh, from the grand jury report generally, um, and it, 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 it's, it's fairly focused, but I think communication, it, it all points to communication, and um, whether that's communication on our end and being good receivers of communication and getting back to folks and or uh, on the, on the uh, resident end, knowing where to call, when to call, who to call. And um, I think it's, it's uh, and also then do we have the capacity actually to, to be responsive. So I think this has been, real. this is a really helpful report and I do, and from your responses within the, what we're approving today and just um, here on the, on the dais, obviously um, a lot of work is going into how, how behavioral health communicates with the, with the broader county. Um, I think the website is, and just continues to be in need of help um, um, and I would, I would love a circle back in, in the future, n not necessarily uh, in public, but just one-on-ones to just talk to us and let us know how we are improving uh, our direct communication so that county residents who depend on us um, know, how to, know how to access services. I think a lot of it's just language and semantics. I still think people don't understand, don't even use the term behavioral health, frankly, um, in terms of the kind of services that people provide. So. I think um, we have a ways to go, but I think there's really good focus there, and there is a lot more work that goes on uh, outside uh, in collaboration with community partners around the suicide prevention and advertising the access line, et cetera, et cetera. But it's got to be more co coordinated. We can do better, and I'm glad the grand jury did this report. And thank you um, for your work. I really feel like, Todd, you, you've gotten really on top of behavioral health, and yeah, excellent job. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate the responses. I was wondering on the recommendation five about the, the move of the transition to the 24-7 uh, mobile crisis response team. Can you maybe talk a little more to that and kind of the plan as we move towards the end of the year? Is that something that will be coming back to this board? Maybe just kind of walk us through the next six months with that. Sure. So as part of our Mental Health Services Act plan, we, um, we added some positions uh, to staff up the program so that we can provide 24-7 um, coverage. Uh, the model that we'll be working with is uh, currently we have uh, two clinicians on duty at any time and they respond in teams of two. So our goal is to pair one clinician with one um, uh, peer provider, so that's a person with lived experience, or one um, substance use counselor so that they can respond specifically to substance use crises. Um, so the goal there would then be they could staff it 24-7. Um, we are finishing up our implementation plan and we'll be submitting that to the state. Um, it, I believe we're planning to come back to your board here in the next month or two uh, to share that implementation plan uh, with the target go live data at the end of December. Gotcha. Okay. And, and those calls ultimately would be dispatched from 988 or even, even a 911 or how would, how would that call reach the internal team to go out and respond? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, Mobile Crisis has a direct line. Uh, we have two dispatchers who work specifically for our Mobile Crisis team. Um, so right now, the, the, the path is to call Mobile Crisis directly. Um, 988 uh, can take, they, they can take calls, they will take calls, and then they will direct them to us. But at, at this time, they don't have the ability to dispatch our team directly. Gotcha. So people either will call you directly or it will go through another channel that will then get routed to you. Correct. Gotcha. Well, looking forward to uh, when you come back in the next month or two. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Uh, Todd, I want to thank you also for the work you've done here. Good report. I agree with Supervisor Rice. That it's great to see all of the information you provided. I, I think that's a, a great response to the grand jury. 
Um, uh, you know, behavioral health has uh, needs have really grown since COVID. There's no doubt about that. And you and BHRS have responded, which is marvelous. And we have more ways to go. So um, I, I, I appreciate the things that are in motion and look forward to, uh, you know, the updates as you follow them through. I, I want to go back to something that Supervisor Sackett said, and this is sort of how do we offer co comprehensive referrals beyond the Medi-Cal patients, which I know are our main target audience. But I think communications will help. Uh, we just sat through a wonderful agenda item on collaboration, public-private collaboration, and I wondered whether there is a counterpart collaborative of private health, uh, behavioral health providers that might be able to uh, take a piece of this and work it. I don't find uh, private health care insurance to be the most easy to work with when it comes to behavioral health. Uh, personally, I've experienced that, so I gave up trying to get it covered that way. Uh, and so I, I just wonder if there is uh, an opportunity for uh, the private sector uh, working with the nonprofit sector, just if there's anything you're, you see, not for the purposes of this report, but just as we think comprehensively about improving outcomes throughout the county in behavioral health. Uh, so you can answer that now or you can come back another time <laughs> and tell me. But it does feel like we're working our part more and more thoroughly. Uh, and then that leaves everybody else. So. Yeah, I think it's a very good point, Supervisor Mulder and Peters, that you know we're a small part of the behavioral health system in this county. Uh, between 10 and 20 percent of the population would be served by the county. Uh, so that leaves a large portion of folks who are privately insured. They may be Kaiser members. They may have other insurance plans. And at this time, there is no kind of process to get all those folks together in the same room to talk about access to behavioral health. And we do have, um, for example, we have quarterly meetings with Kaiser to, to care coordination, those kinds of things. But it's not a big picture view of the system. Um, so I, I, I think it's a great idea. I, I wonder if that's a, a topic, for example, for the Behavioral Health Board that might, might be interested in taking that up um, and then some other advocacy groups in our county. But we are very happy to support and help move that forward. Great. It's a great thought of where to refer this to because I, I think it's a worthy conversation. Anyway, I, I support the uh, recommendations and the, and the response to the grand jury. So I'll call for public comment now on this item. Is there anyone in the chambers? I am not seeing anyone. Ah, yes, we do. Please come up. Dan Canner, I'm, and I'm also a member of the AOD board, but I think I'm speaking as a citizen today. Um, one question I had, Todd, if I was mm -hmm. to call 988 for services or for help, would I be directed to specific services or what would be the interface? I do have some comments. Why don't you go that ahead and make question. those? Okay, and then we'll I'll make the comments then. All right. Um, so five years ago, I, I joined the AOD board for um, the same reasons, many of the things that came out in the grand jury report. I thought it was an excellent report um, uh, when my family needed help navigating the system and finding the help we needed was very, very difficult. Um, in some of the things, just to go over about the web page, and I know it's changed over years, but just last night I went up to, because I was reading the report over again, and it took me four steps down to get call this number. Um, I believe call this number is the access line. 
Um, in the access line, someone asked how many calls came in. In 2022, there were 2,159 calls to the access line. Um, my experience with the access line, um, which also refers to F3, where they partially disagree. Um, I think if you partially disagree, you're agreeing that a lot of people aren't helped when they need it. Um, my experience with that, that line was calling three times. I think um, three or four days later, I got a call back with a, a voicemail. Um, and so I just, um, I'm really happy that the report was done. I think it's an excellent report. I think there's a lot uh, pointed out, a lot to be done, and I know a lot is being done, and I appreciate all that. Um, I feel like mental health and substance use are very complex problems. Um, and I need to ask you to wrap up, maybe just okay. another sentence I think, or I feel two. they're very complex problems, and as a couple other uh, board members pointed out, that I feel that collaboration and strong leadership from the top, I think, to unify all the efforts, to bring people together so that people don't fall through the cracks as the woman who we heard described. Great, thank you very much. You. You're welcome. Let's go online. The first speaker is Dolores, please, please unmute. Um, again, uh, a, cr a, a crisis is immediate and the mobile crisis still is not working on weekends from my understanding. And to release somebody who was sober after four months in jail just to the street with a bus ticket, I think it's tragic. In all my experiences of calling all of the agencies, everyone gives me a new phone number but nobody addresses the problem that I am working on. I feel that uh, maybe Behavior Health could monitor their contractors a little bit more. An example, Buckaloo, I called and I did not get a call back for two and a half weeks and I was almost out the door to knock on their front door in Novato and ask if anybody was around. I still believe that we need residential long-term uh, rehab for people who have a dual diagnosis and need psychiatric help here in Marin, and there is no such thing. It is my understanding that in the 80s, there were many facilities that took care of that, and now they have all been closed. There is residential if you're just detoxing from drugs and getting therapy and attending uh, AA or NA. I think there's a lot more work to be done, and I'm glad that uh, we're diving into it and really talking about it. It is so vital to our community. My son is a Medi-Cal insured person. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is John Riley. Please unmute. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, thanks for this opportunity, and thank you, Dr. Shimmer, for your explanation. My, my question uh, relevant to the grand jury report is, uh, given that Buckaloo is the manager of the 998 line, 
and Buckaloo contracts with the county. Who has the oversight for Buckaloo in terms of putting performance parameters uh, around their uh, commitments and measuring them and holding them to accountability? Uh, I appreciate that this is a difficult and complicated uh, a process, uh, but I, I, I still don't understand how the accountability factors uh, kick in here in terms of having that contractor identify the problems like 40% um, is not a very good rate and uh, do something about them in a substantive way where their contract is held accountable to that. I would just go on to say that um, the issues that Dr. Schirmer referred to uh, are personally known to me in terms of my own family, but finding providers in the Marin community or anywhere for that matter uh, who are not under Medi-Cal or Medicare uh, but for insurance purposes, is, is a, a really serious problem, as I'm sure many people have experienced, not just me. Um, and we need to spend some time thinking as stakeholders within the county worried about mental health and uh, substance abuse resources, uh, how we can manage this and bring people together to provide the, the whole population of the uh, Marin community with the opportunity to find um, uh, competent people who are willing to respond and uh, not simply uh, respond by Zoom, um, uh, but see people face to face and uh, provide the kind of care that they need. Thank you for your attention. The next speaker is Eva, please unmute. Thanks, I wanted to recognize the comments of Dolores, um, whose, whose son um, is on Medi-Cal and can't get assistance because it has been a constant trope from the AOD board um, that that um, you know, it's the people who aren't on Medi-Cal who aren't getting help. And I think what we can see now is it's everyone isn't getting help. Um, and this has been known in you know, working class and um, black and Latino communities for decades. And now it's suddenly occurring to the rest of the community. A lot of this has to do with how we've apportioned uh, funding in this country. We spent more and more and more money on policing and less and less and less money on functional um, healthcare uh, and education. Uh, I would point out that the Drug Enforcement Administration, which the AOD board, the very pro-law enforcement AOD board was very happy to bring on as well as other law enforcement agencies as guests at their lily white board, um, that has a budget of $3.28 billion. Uh, and every year we give them more money and every year the drug crisis gets worse. And that has, you know, real impact on mental health. As long as we're gonna do that, the problem will continue to get worse. We need to reapportion funding. It needs to go back into things that serve the community, not military equipment, uh, not a corrupt drug enforcement administration um, that, that continually has to be busted by the DOJ for their own corruption, their own drug running, their own bribe taking, and so on. Um, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack, uh, but it, it is worth um, saying that while, you know, this public-private partnership has been lauded continually uh, by people like Dr. Willis, when you have a public-private partnership, it's Thank the you, public Eva. who loses. Thank you. Thank you. First, I'm going to be additional speakers in the queue. Okay, I'm going to bring it back to the board now. 
Is there someone who wishes to make a motion on this I item? I would move um, to adopt the uh, response as written. Second. Okay, we have a motion by Rice, a second by Lucan. All in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you very much. We'll move now to item number eight. This is item number eight, public works, uh, regarding a ordinance on speed on Platform Bridge Road near Point Ray Station. Good morning, supervisors. I'm Chris Blank, the engineering manager and uh, interim assistant public works director. Uh, our request of you this morning is uh, to introduce an ordinance with the first reading by title only. Uh, to reduce the speed limit on Platform Bridge Road near Point Reyes Station. Just very quick background. Uh, additional on that request uh, to schedule a merit hearing for October 10th, 2023. Quick background on this request. Uh, it came in from the National Park Service. Um, the Platform Bridge Road being a rural two-lane highway has a default or prima facie speed limit of 55 miles per hour under the vehicle code. And a local jurisdiction has the ability to perform an engineering and traffic survey uh, to determine if the speed limit could be posted lower. And in this case, uh, our staff determined that speed limit could be reduced to 50 miles per hour uh, between Point Reyes Petaluma Road and milepost 1.04 and reduced to 45 miles per hour in both directions between milepost 1.04 and uh, Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. Okay, and so just for the purpose of the public. So today you're just introducing this and we'll be taking public comment in, in the second reading. Is that That's correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, Supervisor Rigoni, any comment to make on this? And no comment, thank you. Thank you for bringing this forward. Okay. Uh, so I'm sorry, County Administrator, do I take public comment now or what's the process? Okay. Uh, we'll take public comment for anyone. I'm not seeing anyone in the chambers. Is there anyone online? And again, we'll, this will come back to us Next week or two weeks? October 10th. We don't have a date. Okay. October 10th. Okay. Very good. All right. There's no public comment. So I'll thank you. I'll move this item. Okay. Second. Okay. Motion Radoni. Second Lucan. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you for bringing this to us. Thank you. See you on October 10th. <laughs> item nine uh, appointments. Start with uh, County Service Area 16 in Greenbrae. We have one vacancy. Is there a nomination to for this vacancy? No, not quite. Um, yes, I would recommend. Um, I move that we uh, appoint Mark Wheaton Keller. Okay, we have a motion. Is there a second? Second. Thank you. Uh, is there any public comment on this appointment nomination? No. Okay. Uh, motion rise. Second, Lucan. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. Uh, flood control call zone three. Uh, yes, I'd appreciate if, if someone would move Stephen Real. Move Stephen Real second. for that appointment. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? I don't see anyone in the chambers. Okay. We had a motion by uh, Bradoni, a second by Rice. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. Housing Authority Commission. We have two vacancies due to term expirations. Uh, yes. Would someone like to move two names? Okay. 
I'm going to move the reappointment of Homer Hall and Sarah Cancer. Yeah, you beat me to it, um, and I would second that. Okay. Is there any public comment on this item? Okay, we'll bring it back for a vote. These two have been good uh, stalwarts on the, the board, and so that's why I'm moving their reappointment. Uh, uh, Peters, I'm sorry to interrupt you. There is a speaker online. Thank you. We'll take public comment. Uh, first speaker is Dee. Please unmute. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Hi, Damien here. Um, I have a question. Uh, I think it's uh, valid to clarify uh, why this item for the housing commissioners has been moved from your, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, this has happened during your housing commission commissioner meetings in the past. Uh, it seems to be that you moved it to your regular uh, board of supervisors meeting. Will you clarify if I'm correct and if it, it has been moved and I'm wondering why? Thank you. President Mullen Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Okay, thank you for the question. We're getting clarification right now. All right. All right, supervisors, we want to make sure we get the right answer on that. So what we're proposing is to continue that uh, that appointment to your 130 uh, item so that we can deal with it up front and research it in the meantime. Okay, all right, that's just fine. So we'll table this appointment for now and uh, we'll move on now to item number D uh, and that is uh, Schedule interviews for the Public Financing Authority JPA Board of Directors. We've had 14 excellent applications. I want to compliment everyone who applied. You are a very talented and experienced group. Uh, we would be fortunate to have any of you, and I want to find a way to engage each and every one of the 14 in planning for affordable housing in Marin County, whether you end up serving on this board or not. So with that, I am going to ask each uh, uh, Board of Supervisors member to just give me one name that you would like to put forward for the two vacancies that exist on this board. And uh, I will take a volunteer to lead that off. I'll um, nominate Maureen Kennedy to be interviewed. Okay, thank you. We have a nomination. We're going to take uh, up to five for today. Uh, Supervisor Sackett. I will nominate Paul Jensen. Thank you. Supervisor Rice. Um, I will nominate um, Ann Becker. Okay, thank you. And Supervisor Lucan. I'll nominate for an interview Derek Nell. All right, and I would like to nominate uh, Dave, David Anderson for an interview. 
Okay, so we make a motion on those five individuals. I move the, um, that we move forward for interviews, David Anderson, and Becker, Paul Jensen, Maureen Kennedy, and Derek Nell. Okay, we have a motion. Is there a second? Second. Thank you. Motion, Rice, second, Lucan for the fourth, uh, can five candidates. And again, thank you to everyone who applied. Really Any outstanding public group. Public Any comment, public please. Comment. Thank you. Not seeing anyone. Not seeing any. Anyone online? There are no speakers in the queue. Okay, we have a motion and a second. Supervisor Moulton Peters, can I interrupt this? <laughs> I just, th uh, I guess I'm struggling with this because there's two seats, and I do feel like we have a couple of, I mean, we just have an abundance of really qualified candidates. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned that we may be missing out on some opportunities for um, diversity amongst the pool. And so I would like to interview um, a couple more candidates. And I know it's time consuming, but I think it's important. Okay, I'm seeing head nodding here. So okay. I, uh, we would take another. Would you recommend Edgardo Vasquez and Isis Spinola Schwartz? And I would add those two names to um, interviews to move forward. Okay, very good. We have a revised motion now with the seven names. We have so, I'm sorry, you moved it, and Eric, did you second? Uh, I think I seconded the original one, yes. I'm happy to add those. Okay, very good. So, uh, motion to approve the revised list of seven names. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Very good. That carries, and we'll schedule those interviews. Thank you. With that, we will recess as the Marin County Board of Supervisors and reconvene now as the Marin County Flood Control Water District and reconvene as the Board of Supervisors. We will be going into closed session now and reconvene at 1.30. Thank you, everyone. Good afternoon. We have uh, just come out of closed session. There is nothing to report. <clears throat> we are convening as the Marin County Board of Supervisors, and we are going to pick up an item from the er this morning's agenda. That would be agenda item 8D, excuse me, 8C. 9. 9C. 9C. Oh, dear. Thank yeah. you. Yep. Uh, and, the, and that is the Housing Authority Commission. We have two vacancies due to two term expirations. We have had three applicants apply, uh, and now it is time for us to uh, make appointments.
Supervisor, could I briefly Please. comment? Uh, speaker raised a good question asking whether this should be uh, uh, an appointment of the Housing Commission or the Board of Supervisors. Health and Safety Code Section 34271 provides it's an appointment of the Board of Supervisors. So I just wanted to make sure that was clear in the record. Okay, so it is appropriate for the Board of Supervisors to appoint rather than the Housing Authority Board. Okay, uh, with that, uh, we've had um, uh, applications by uh, Homer Hall, Sarah Canson, and uh, Terry Thomas. So I would entertain the motion. And just, I would make a, the motion to um, reappoint the two incumbents, Homer Hall and Sarah Canson. And I'm thank Terry for her application. Just to his. Second. Okay. We have a motion and a second to reappoint incumbents. Is there any uh, public comment? I don't see anyone here in the chambers. Is there anyone online? President Mullen Peters, there are no speakers in the queue. Okay, we'll bring it back then. Uh, we had a motion by Rice, second by Sackett. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, thank you. Okay, we will continue on now with item number 12. And this is our CDA department. Welcome to our CDA staff members. And I'll go ahead and let you tee this one up. Good afternoon, supervisors. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, we have a presentation to accompany our, um, our hearing um, for the inclusionary housing and commercial linkage fees, development code and fees. Uh, next slide. Before your board today, um, we are holding a hearing to, uh, on, on the merits of proposed development code amendments and associated fees for inclusionary housing and commercial linkage. We are asking your board to adopt an ordinance approving development code amendments and um, adopt a resolution establishing inclusionary housing in lieu fees and commercial linkage impact fees. These policy actions accomplish program 24 of the certified housing element. Next slide. I'd like to provide a little bit of background for what we're presenting today. Oh, I should introduce myself, I apologize. Uh, my name is Molly Crone, and I am a senior planner with the Housing and Federal Grants Division of the Marin uh, Community Development Agency. Back to the background. Uh, on May 16th of this year, your board held a hearing and adopted two studies uh, that are inclusionary housing feasibility study, financial feasibility study, and a commercial linkage, impact, commercial linkage fee impact study and you directed staff to return to your board with the implementing documents um, for these two studies. On subsequent to this meeting on August 14th, the staff presented to the Planning Commission at a workshop uh, proposed development code changes to implement these two studies. And at a hearing of the Planning Commission on the 28th of August, they approved a resolution recommending that the Board of Supervisors adopt these changes. Next slide. The work before you today is really the result of an effort that began in 2019 when the county and other local jurisdictions received funds through SB2, which is the uh, Building Jobs and Homes Act. Through this funding source, the Housing Planning Group, which is a group of planning directors uh, here in Marin County, identified a number of housing-related 
policies and programs that they would like to engage in. And one of these activities was inclusionary zoning. Um, so a group of seven jurisdictions, including the county, worked together to uh, convene a, a regional effort to establish studies for the inclusionary housing in lieu fee and commercial linkage fee adoption. Uh, in order to engage in this effort, Strategic Economics and Vernazza Wolf and Associates were hired as consultants to conduct these two studies. Um, and a, a key result of this process was identifying consistent policies across jurisdictions. And this was really a result of, of feedback that was derived from stakeholder engagement sessions where we learned from developers that the um, variations in policies across jurisdictions created a barrier and a burden on developers um, in, in the creation of projects. Next slide. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the jurisdictions that were involved in this process include Corn Madera, Fairfax, Larkspur, San Anselmo, San Rafael, Sausalito, and unincorporated Marin. As you can see on the slide, there are a number of jurisdictions that had existing, pre-existing inclusionary policies. However, two did not. Um, and then there are a, a few jurisdictions that had existing commercial linkage fees. Um, fee studies, and but the most most did not. I will note that Marin County adopted its first inclusionary housing policy in 1980, and it was last updated in 2008. And the county adopted its commercial linkage fee policy in 2003, and it has not been updated since. Next slide. Before you for consideration are recommended changes to Title 22 of the Marin County Code. Uh, this is affectionately con called the development code. Next slide. The amendments recommended by the Planning Commission impact two specific chapters. Chapter 2222, which is the affordable housing regulations, and chapter 22130, which is definitions that help with the understanding and implementation of 2222. The modifications are organized into four categories, which we will go over in just a second. Next slide. These proposed amendments are the direct result of the extensive study process that I described earlier. Um, this process included an examination of best practices, varying housing markets, financial feasibility of proposed requirements and fees, stakeholder feedback, and legal requirements. A key goal, um, as I mentioned, was establishing some consistency across jurisdictions, um, and through this regional effort, this collaborative effort, all the jurisdictions were able to experience significant cost savings. Next slide. The first of the categories um, that we'll look at is clarifications and corrections. Some of the examples here are um, the removal of references to fee adjustment processes as those are not implemented by the development code but rather by resolution of your board. Um, including more detailed criteria for waivers and documenting processes to ensure ongoing affordability through the use of regulatory agreements and generally better describing um, the expectations for compliance by applicants regarding the affordable housing plans. Next slide. The second area of modification is internal consistency with code and policy. Um, two Two of the key features here include eliminating the option for off-site units and lots within cities and towns. 
This is important because um, our current policy allows for developers to put off-site units or lots in another city or town. However, um, through implementing this, it has, um, it has considerable um, administrative barriers, both for the city and for the county. In addition to that, it prevents the county from realizing new units um, through the regional housing needs assessment. So we are not able to get credit for units that we are um, building in another city or county. To counter this, um, we are including the option of placing offsite units in racially concentrated areas of affluence. This is a term defined and mapped by the state, uh, the California State Department of Housing and Community Development. Um, and I'll provide you a map in just a second to give you an example of what that looks like. And then finally, um, we're removing reference to rent rental impact fees, which was a policy that was rescinded in 2019. Next slide. The map before you is a map of racially concentrated areas of affluence. And this is defined by HCD as neighborhoods where populations have disproportionately um, higher rates of white residents and affluence. The term was really developed as a, um, to describe the continuum of segregation and is the opposite of racially, racially concentrated areas of poverty, um, which is a term that the US Department of Housing and Urban Development utilizes. By allowing developers to place offsite units in racially concentrated areas of affluence, we're broadening their ability to um, place units within the county um, and not restricting them to just the census tract in which their main development is. Um, and it's also allowing the county to better uh, implement its affirmatively, fair, affirmatively furthering fair housing goals. Next slide. The bulk of the changes that you are seeing today are in the section called alignment with uniform inclusionary housing and commercial linkage standards. Some of the key areas here are expanding eligible exemptions for SB9 projects, broadening the affordability levels to all types of development, adopting specific rent levels and sales prices, creating a distinct criteria for rental housing um, versus home ownership housing, modifying the roundup provisions based on project size, we are removing two commercial development types that we just don't see much of. Um, and then also eliminating reference to fee amounts, which as I mentioned before is fees are adopted by your board and not implemented by the development code. Next slide. So I wanna dig into a couple of these areas a little bit. This slide before you describes our current policy with regard to income range, rent level prices, and sales prices. Our current policy does not specify income ranges, um, and then it requires all inclusionary units for rentals be set at 50% of area median income. So um, all of the units have to be priced to be affordable to a household that makes 50% of the area median income. For home ownership units, the all, all inclusionary units are required to be priced affordable to a household at 60% of the area median income. We've received feedback through our stakeholder listening sessions that not having income ranges defined creates some variables that, and, and unknowns that make it hard 
for projects to, projects to be planned, and that the rent level and sales price being one low and very low income pricing make it really uh, hard on projects to pencil, and in often case, oftentimes, they will be proposed smaller so that they don't have to comply with the inclusionary, so we're ending up losing units. What we are proposing in lieu of this is creating distinct income ranges so that there are no questions. It's very clear to developers what the expectation is. And then also creating more, uh, more options for developers around variable incomes. So creating, creating units with inclusionary units within a development that meet a, a variety of income ranges. Next slide. This slide describes the requirements, the proposed requirements for rental housing. The rental housing is, is providing two options to developers to choose from. These options are um, broken out by project size. So the larger a project, the more stringent the affordability requirements would be. And the smaller the project, the more options that they have um, for creating uh, higher income units, still lower income units, but higher within the range. This is important because rental units uh, are subject to AB 1505, which is a state policy that says that inclusionary units of rental housing, a maximum of 15% of them can be affordable at less than 80% of area median income. We have a 20% inclusionary policy, which goes above that 15%. So this menu ensures that we are in compliance with AB 1505 by creating some units that are less than 80% of area median income and some units that are higher, so moderate income and middle income. Um, developers will select from these two options and in all cases, developers have the option of creating units that are more affordable, and we anticipate that we'll see some of that with our larger state density bonus projects. Next slide. This slide describes the requirements for home ownership housing. Again, they're tiered by size um, and create a, a menu of affordability levels for a project. We think that um, some of the some of these changes really acknowledge the difference in strategies around addressing our need for affordable, different levels of affordability within house, housing structure. Um, our previous policies really focused on creating low and very low income units within inclusionary. However, thinking has shifted over the years um, and inclusionary we're really looking at as an opportunity to impact um, middle income housing and create more options for diverse housing within a community and really addressing that affirmatively furthering fair housing requirement. Next slide. The last segment or the last category of changes is specific to definitions um, and we updated or added or modified seven definitions. Four are new and three were modified um, and these are really to be, help support the implementation of the development code and ensure consistent understanding um, across all of the users of the development code. Next slide. All right. Uh, next up is the inclusionary zoning fees. Next slide. 
So the fees before you today were established um, based on the two studies that your board approved in May. Those studies look, look at the maximum allowable fee. Um, they look at market considerations, comparison to other jurisdictions, and ultimately um, are, will be adopted by your board for implementation. Next slide. This slide here describes the assessment that was done in order to determine the proposed fee. The study itself examined three different development types, single family subdivisions, condominiums, and rental. And they looked at the affordability gap, which is the difference between what it costs to develop a unit and what a household can afford to pay for a unit. And they looked at that within three income categories. And the difference between what a household can afford and what it costs to build is what's considered the affordability gap. The average across all of these affordability gaps is a maximum in lieu fee of $362,000. Next slide. Staff are proposing that we adopt one fee across all development types for that $362,817. Um, our existing fee is currently $399,000. And one of the reasons why we are um, recommending adopting one fee across all development types and across all of, all of the incomes is because we are providing a multitude of incomes within these, the inclusionary policy. Um, so we're not building to just 50% AMI or 80% AMI. It will be cross-cutting. And further, it wouldn't, um, by having variable fees based on development size would put further barriers and burdens on the development of rental housing, which we know here in this county there is a lack of and um, are harder to develop. Next slide. With regard to the commercial impact fees, um, this fee is quantified based on the increased demand for affordable housing um, that is a result of non-residential development. So new commercial space oftentimes means new workers, um, and depending on the types of jobs that that commercial space is creating, increases the demand for affordable housing. Next slide. This slide shows you the possible fees that could be, uh, could be required based on the type of development. The study looked at three different development types, office and medical space, retail and restaurants, and hotels. As you can see, the maximum fee per square foot is fairly large um, and likely untenable for development within the county and would certainly um, stymie new development of commercial space in the county of Marin, unincorporated Marin. Next slide. Through the uh, inclusionary working group, um, the jurisdictions identified fees that were uh, found to be in alignment with um, and consistent with other jurisdictions' policies and were, um, were looking at and acknowledging the recovery efforts that were still underway around from COVID-19, specifically in the commercial space. Um, and, and commercial development space. Uh, they also look at um, the ability for developers and small businesses, um, particularly independent businesses, 
to build new space for their for their their industries. So, for instance, retail and restaurants has a two-tiered uh, fee system, and that is a direct result of the concerns that the inclusionary working group had around smaller independent owners trying to build space um, and not wanting to overtax them. Next slide. So included with the resolution before you today is an adjustment factor. Adjustment factors are utilized um, as a standard practice in the field, and these ensure that the fees that are being required of projects um, are up to date with inflation, and by having adjustment factors built into the policy, it prevents us from coming back down the road and having an extreme rise in the, in, in the fee cost. Um, so we are recommending maintaining the current system that we use, the current policy, which is using the higher of either the construction cost index or the consumer price index for shelter. Um, and these would be approved by your board. Next slide. And with that, I'll conclude my presentation and open it up for questions. Great. Thank you, Molly. Uh, questions from the board? Supervisor's packet. You look ready to go. <laughs> so a couple of detailed questions, but could you start with like the big picture of what this is trying to get at? Sure. So the big picture is um, when we are developing housing, we have uh, both a requirement from the state to ensure that we are affirmatively furthering fair housing, um, and we also have uh, a requirement to ensure that we are creating communities that are integrating uh, people from different incomes, different backgrounds, um, to meet those affirmatively furthering fair housing goals. Inclusionary housing requires that a developer place units in a new development, a sub new subdivision, that are accessible to households at lower incomes than a market rate um, property would be sold for. But the big picture on what this action is going for, I guess, is my no, question. Can, can sure, I just yes. add something? Yeah. Um, so one thing I think that we're trying to do with the proposed changes um, to the inclusionary is to address the fact that we're seeing with a number of our smaller subdivisions that it's not feasible for them to develop one, you know, 20% of the units at the low income that we require currently, 60% of the area median income. And it's really hard to have home ownership at that level. And so what we're trying to do is provide some more variation between projects based on the development size, right? So that there's something that if you're doing a, a smaller project, there's different affordabilities and, and a different um, breakdown of the units. So that's really, I think, the crux of that piece of it. And then we're updating the fees based on updated information and trying to have more uniformity with our fellow cities and towns that we worked with on this. Because um, as we've talked about, like having this patchwork of regulations is kind of a challenge. You know, we have communities right now that you develop that have no inclusionary requirement, right? And then we have the county with 20% 
and then other communities have 10%. So it's just really difficult for a developer when they're like, wait, should I do it here or should I do it there? So just having more consistency is also one of the overarching goals. Okay, thank you. That helps. Um, when you're looking, you know, looking at this commercial linkage fee and changing it to, uh, I guess, a round number that's more consistent, um, to some extent makes sense, but what I'm trying to also think about is what other factors play into a commercial linkage fee, sales tax revenue, other, you know, city revenues, county revenues. Are those being considered as part of this amendment update or is this solely kind of a per cost, cost per foot on any new construction? So that this, yeah, that it does. So this, fee is specifically looking at how much, um, the assessment looks at how much new housing is required based on the types of jobs that are created by new, new development um, and what it costs for us to develop housing to support those new jobs in order to have our workforce be able to live in the county that they serve. So that's all that it considers? It's primarily considering that. I would also note that we have very little commercial, new commercial development. I mean, we've probably collected a handful of fees in the past 10 years. Um, but the goal really is that every type of development in the county s does something to support our affordable housing needs because they're adding, every type of development is adding to the need for additional housing to serve those workforce. So the goal really is that everybody is contributing, but it is noteworthy that we have very few new commercial developments in the unincorporated part of the county. Most of that development goes within cities and towns. And I thought I read somewhere, but didn't hear it, that, we, that you're proposing that that fee increase every year according to these metrics, but it looked like the last time it was, we've, reviewed it was in 2003? Yes, so the commercial linkage fee is the only uh, inclusionary zoning fee that has not was not approved with an adjustment mechanism. Every other fee that we have utilizes the adjustment mechanism that's proposed in here, which is the higher of either the construction cost index or the consumer price index for shelter. And I don't know how much those fluctuate, but to me it's, you know, in trying to give the developers information and consistency maybe every year is too frequent to address those um, or to adjust them that it should be a longer period of time just to have consistency and continuity that's my questions thank you thank you for the report um, with you shifting sort of the income level though to different income levels were you trying to address the fact that many of our low-income residents earn too much money to qualify for some of these programs? Was that in your thoughts to, to have different levels? <clears throat> the thought around adjusting, having a variety of income levels is more around um, the, the issue that we've heard both from our inclusionary housing provider, which is the Marin Housing Authority, who implements our below market rate units, which gave us, provided us feedback that it's really hard for households earning 60% of area median income to afford the mortgage, afford 
you know, uh, assessments afford their housing, their HOA fees and their insurance. So it's, it's a real burden and by um, broadening the affordability levels, um, folks at different incomes can have access to home ownership in Marin County, which is, is a, you know, a premier goal for a lot of households. Um, but with recent laws that were just passed at the state that allows HOAs to have lower fees for below market rate units, they can now share those fees across units in a different way so that those folks that are at 60% AMI um, may not have the same cost burden as people who are at higher income levels. Um, and it creates an environment where we're creating truly, um, truly diverse and inclusive communities where we have people of market rate units, um, middle income units, and, and truly low and very low income all living cohesively in the same community. Good, thank you. Yeah. And I would just add that you, you did note that, you know, it also addresses, we've added a category to, you know, we've had before kind of low, moderate, and we've added another category, that middle income. And it is really intended to do, I think what you're talking about is address the fact that even somebody who's making more than 120% of the area median income still can't afford to buy here. So it does increase some opportunities for those households without having so much of an impact on the feasibility of, of a smaller development. Great, thank you, and I applaud that approach uh, to try and be creative to help more people get into rentals or, or purchasing housing. Um, did you say earlier that you're uh, coordinating with the cities, other agencies, and that included cities? Yes, so this project, um, the, the process for updating our inclusionary zoning included uh, six other jurisdictions that were involved in the study process. They've adopted the studies, all, all jurisdictions except for one adopted the studies and are implementing um, the policy policies co consistent with what um, the study identified and recommended. They look similar to what you're proposing today? They do. Just um, one question. Um, wondering to what degree um, we looked, you looked for feedback input from the developer community, and then secondly, to what degree do are you hoping that some of these changes? They're made for different reasons, but but in terms of um, actually what a Supervisor Bodoni was just sort of pointing out, the sort of creativity and different income levels that you're building in here. To what degree do you think it's going to make a difference in terms of um, uh, actually having 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 developers come forward with projects or not so during the study process we had three uh, listening sessions we held two with market rate developers and one with affordable housing developers and some of the proposed changes including the multiple income levels um, are are directly tied to the feedback that we received in those listening sessions Second question. Then your second question was about whether we, you know, we think that this is going to actually result in more housing, and that is definitely we think that it will, particularly with the smaller land divisions. I can think of a, a number of land divisions that started out as ones that our inclusionary would currently apply to, and then as they started doing the analysis and looked at the cost of it, that they just dropped their project down so that it was small enough that there was no inclusionary requirement anymore. So we do think that particularly on the smaller end that it's going to result in 
and some more housing and some more housing options as as Molly talked about. Okay, and then uh, one follow up to that. So um, and we've seen it in different projects that have been come forward in different municipalities and 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 anywhere w other places in the county that um, um, a development's proposed. The general public sees that it only has 10 or maybe even 20% affordable units and um, they're not only upset about potentially the development itself, but it wouldn't be so bad if it had more um, workforce affordable housing. And I, I'm just uh, wondering to the degree which, I, I think that's an area that we need to talk about more and actually the cost of development, but if you just, if you could just flesh out a little bit more the actual ability of a project to pencil out at 20% low income, uh, you know, a project of 20 units or less or something. Just if you could speak to that a little bit and so that I understand it better, so I can communicate to the public about it and um, why setting these bars where they are um, and we can't set them higher um, and expect any housing to come forward. Um, sure. So. I can start with that and then Lily can tack on whatever I've missed. Um, so for instance, uh, within the field, 20% is generally the practice that is recommended and it's largely dependent upon um, the market that you're in, the housing market that you're in and the, the cost of development. Um, when when a project is looking at its overall costs and how it can, um, they're, they're looking at the potential sales price, um, what their carrying costs are for the development of the project, the purchase of the land, um, and in order for it to be feasible, they need to be able to meet a certain revenue. Um, and what we have found through the study process is that jurisdictions with a higher um, higher percentage, oftentimes we'll see, we'll see developments um, receive entitlements but not be developed. And I would just add that, you know, one of the things that the state now kind of evaluates are inclusionary policies and they, they see inclusionary policies that are too high as a barrier to developing housing because, you know, Marin has a really high cost of development. There was a study done recently that showed that we have the highest per unit cost of development in the um, Bay Area. I think we're over $900,000 for our affordable and multifamily units. Um, and so spreading that, that cost, you know, the, the more, the higher percentage of inclusionary units than the less likely your project is gonna pencil out, right? Because our land cost is expensive, um, our process for entitlements, et cetera, as well as materials and labor are really high right now. So I think it's really just looking at the cost of development. And they looked at that in that study and we're happy to pull out some talking points from that and send them around to you all. So, because I think as we get projects through, those questions are gonna come up, why isn't there more? And when it's, there's a, it's also worth noting that when there's a density bonus on the project, we don't get to require more affordable units so that in general, density bonus units can, or density bonus projects can have a lower percentage of affordability than a, a non-density bonus. So that, I think it's important to understand that also. So I think we'll, we'll highlight that for you also. Um, 
But I think another um, option for us is to think about, is there a way that we can negotiate and talk with developers about ways of providing more affordable units, particularly ones that are at that higher affordability level that aren't as deeply affordable but still are providing needed housing and so exploring options for that. You know, there's some examples that we have where instead of integrating the housing throughout the development as our requirement is, you might you might put them all together but then you get more units and so looking at those kind of options and having some flexibility to do that. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, just a couple questions looking at the uh, the ordinance itself. Um, we're making a couple little changes with regards to fractional units or decimals of units. So uh, I, I see in one place we're saying if it's four or less, then we round up. If it's five or more, then we rely on the state density bonus law roundup provision. Um, is that easy to find and explain? Sure. So. Um so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the existing roundup requirement and then talk about the state density bonus requirement. So our current policy requires that if there is a fractional unit, so for instance, if you are developing three units, that's 60% of a full inclusionary unit. And so you would have, our current policy is if it's 0.5 or more, it rounds up to a full unit. Um, so if you were had a three unit subdivision, one of those units would be required to be affordable. Um, we are adjusting that to a 0.7 so that if you have a four unit development, then you would round up to one unit being affordable. And this directly speaks to sort of the smaller projects scaling down so that they don't have to meet the inclusionary requirement. Um, what the, the new policy is, is if it's four or more, the roundup is at 0.7 or higher. If it's five or more units, then it relies on the state density bonus requirement. And the state density bonus does not allow for fractional units. So if there is any fractional unit, it will round up. And the reason that we are relying on the state density bonus is for projects that are five or more, developers are utilizing state density bonus um, more times than not because of the, um, the, the ability for them to get waivers and concessions um, that they wouldn't be able to access otherwise. And so it's consistent with what we see in the implementation of our development process already, um, that state density bonus allow, doesn't allow for fractional units, so they're rounding up to that full unit. Gotcha, so if, if it was a three unit, so that uh, you're potentially rounding down, do they still have to pay that fractional of the in-lieu fee? Indeed, yes. Gotcha, yep. okay. Um, thank you for that. And then um, residential care. Um, facilities. So um, if if the residential care facility has just as it says a residential component then the inclusionary zone and zoning ordinance does apply? So we actually have a separate standalone um, residential care facility commercial impact nexus study that was adopted previously and we are not modifying that. That is a standalone resolution that your board approved and so we that it's a specific fee that's that's based on the square footage. It's not per unit um, inclusionary units. Um, there was one section in here that maybe uh, let's see if I could find it here. We are removing reference to the fee amounts. Okay. Because the fee amounts are updated on an annual basis, consistent with the the resolution that was approved um, for that that policy and. Um, 
the fees are not implemented by the development code. They are they are implemented by way of resolution of your board. So that that's why we're re removing those. So this section here, um, <clears throat> this is 22.22.100, uh, where it says, mix, uh, well, this is mixed-use developments per, okay, maybe that's mixed-use. I'm sorry, it's under resident care. Now, I, now I'm reading it correctly. My okay. apologies. Um, and then the last question, uh, switching over to the commercial linkage fee um, and, w and the, the fee that we have on like retail and um, restaurants. Is there any mechanism that we have to evaluate, I don't know, I guess this is tricky, the, the type of business. Um, certainly you have some retail restaurants that are coming in and they're paying low wages and not, not providing benefits or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have others that are better operators that are taking care of their employees. Is there any mechanism to evaluate those separately or is it the same standard across the board? So um, it's currently the same standard across the board and partially that is because that operator could sell the building and move to another location and a different operator without the same standards could move into that building and provide a, a deeper sort of demand for affordable housing. I would also note that this is only for new construction, so if there is an existing a restaurant that's moving into an existing building or any other kind of business that's moving into an existing commercial space, there's this fee wouldn't apply. It's just when there's new space being built. So when somebody's building a new restaurant space before they even have a tenant, you don't, you don't know what kind of restaurant it's going to be, what sort of operator it's going to be, so you, you apply the fees at that point. Exactly. Makes sense. All right. Thank you. Okay, I just have one or two questions, and they're a little bit of a repeat of what was asked earlier. But as you're as you're reworking some of the uh, the codes and the inclusionary zones, uh, uh, it was your project size and the two options for the, you know the different affordability levels. So you're giving more flexibility as to what the developers can do. It sounds like, and. Um, I was wondering if you had mentioned, Molly, that there's a little bit more of a focus on creating units for more moderate middle income people with, with this inclusionary, if I heard it correctly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is that also balanced with um, what we hope to do, creating more just 100% affordable projects? So there's a, yeah. Absolutely. And if you don't mind, I'll just speak sure. a little bit to that. So. Um, you know, historically, inclusionary was used as a tool to create those more deeply affordable, and we found that it's not as effective as investing the affordable housing fund into 100% affordable projects. Um, and so that's really where that, that generates from. Yeah, that now makes a lot of sense, and that's what, what I've seen as well. So I think it's a good change, more realistic. And on that realistic, so we've got our 20%. Uh, inclusionary, and and I'm going to ask, do we think that's realistic, right? Because sometimes just the percentage is a barrier. So, yeah, I think it is realistic. It is what we see generally in the field. It was the recommend. It was the recommendation that came through the study and the analysis of our jurisdiction, our housing market, um, and our surrounding markets. And I think also um, because of the ability for developers to include middle income units, moderate income units, um, it's going to advance housing that much more. Okay. 
And then last point relates to something Supervisor Rice said as we get our talking points, which will be helpful. Uh, if there's anybody uh, in the development or nonprofit community who is quoted, could be quoted on, hey, I think this is the right direction to go, but it would be nice to be able to be able to point to, or your point that industry people were consulted and they agreed this was a good direction. Uh, so, anyway. Can I jump in with a follow-up yes. question? So the working, the housing working group looked at all these issues together and the indication was that they are going to adopt something similar. Are they going to all have the same 20% inclusionary? Yes. So all of the jurisdictions, so as I mentioned, all but one have adopted the studies and are proceeding and all of them have adopted a 20% inclusionary. Um, they are all adopting the same model of the um, tiered affordability within those inclusionary units. Um, so yes. So, they, sorry, excuse me. So San Rafael, um, they modified their inclusionary policy before this study was completed. And so part of their housing element um, programs is to reevaluate that change um, because they, they sort of went ahead of having the study completed to make their modifications. Um, so they, it is part of their, um, their housing element program to reevaluate that and um, staff have um, committed to taking this forward to the, the council, whether the council chooses to adopt that is unclear. And I would just make the point that that is consistent with all of them. Like staff are going to make a recommendation that's similar to this, but every decision maker, obviously at the local level, there may be some changes, but they're all going to come from the base, this basic same recommendations. Although there obviously there's going to be some changes that are made as as cities and towns adopt their policies. Ask for public comment. I'm not seeing any in the room. Let's go. Oh, Jack will talk right up. Please. My name is Jack Crystal. For whoever may not know, <laughs> made a comment earlier that uh, Matthew and I are probably the most uh, longest longevity in this chamber. Um, the uh, the goal um, that has been expressed uh, that the uh, staff has put together is certainly um, laudable and I applaud it. But there is a practical side of it which is based upon what has taken place and experience which in my view being very experienced in all of this does not add up, and I have to bring this up to you. Uh, interjecting, though, the county code before I have requested, presented to you, and also to the planning department, that there are three amendments that have been made before that are wrong, and, uh, and they were supposed to be viewed uh, and hopefully canceled, and I ask that you uh, take a look at that and at some point in time make those corrections. Jack, you just going back to, yeah, let's go to, back to this uh, issue. Um, it's to be able to bring about 
affordable workforce housing in Marin County. Uh, it's putting in fees. The, the, the most practical way to do it is drop those fees and then you will see uh, action. Uh, we're dealing with uh, conditions now where financing can cost seven, eight, nine percent per year. And who knows when that will come down. No developer or property owner uh, can afford that and provide you with the results that you're looking for. Okay, thank you, we're if at I, time. If I, if I may, please. Uh, I also, on a, a parallel uh, uh, situation in addressing this, uh, my company owns 10 acres in Southern Marin on the water. Now, okay, Jack, now I'm gonna cut you off because that isn't this item though. That's housing Sorry, on the I, water. I'm, yeah. I'm willing to- I, I understand. To provide this property as an example in how we can provide affordable and workforce Thank housing. You. Okay, Thank you very much. You would direct staff to- Jack? how we can bring results. Well, we'll have to see if BCDC will approve it. So let me, yes, you're welcome to send a, a message, a letter to them and outline that. But for now, we're gonna focus on the inclusionary zoning right here. So thank you for your comments. I gave you an extra minute. So we need to uh, go online now. Yeah, okay. Okay, thank you. We're gonna bring this back. Uh, any further discussion or deliberation? Would anyone care to move this? I would be happy to move this and add that I'd love to talk offline with staff about where we are in our legislative front in terms of having inclusionary elements being, inclusionary provisions being included with a density bonuses in the future. I think it's incredible. Side comment. <laughs> and I'll, I'll second this and commend the work of staff and our planning commission uh, on these changes. Okay. We have a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. Thank you for the work. We are now going to adjourn as the Marin County Board of Supervisors, and we will reconvene at